This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far. Hey, uh, I'm back with a voice, somewhat. Kind of had a little bout with the old sinus flu, whatever we're calling it. Nightmare. Nothing worse than losing your uh, sinuses to a cold. Midsummer cold. Midsummer cold. It's 100 degrees outside. And then cold air. I have, I'm always having cold air blowing on me. It's kind of what I do. Well, that's just because you insist on your children fanning yeah. you constantly. And they do such a great job, but uh, I'm So back. are you overusing the air conditioning? Is that what you're saying? No, it's actually interesting. I have a – we have a ceiling fan in our our bedroom because our bedroom doesn't get as cool as the rest of the house. Right. It's just a neat little engineering feat that mm. they managed to do at our house. Plus the price you pay when you live on the fifth floor of your own home. Yeah. Too many levels. Too many levels. So I just have this fan on me all night, and I I don't know. Not that fans cause colds, but it's just cold air always blowing on me, and I always get a sore throat, I think, just because of cold air. I don't know. And then that causes infections, and I don't know. But it was ugly. It was ugly. But I'm here. Now, let's see how long I can last. Because the voice is like, it's a delicate instrument. And I feel like an opera singer that has to make it now through a three-hour tour. Tour. No, that was the— <laughs> Oh, that's Gilligan's That's album. Gilligan. Sorry. Yeah. We got a great show. Um, we're going to be talking with a musicologist. Mm. I think the most intriguing part of the entire show is the fact that there's people that are called musicologists. Right. And they're not just, you know, druggies that love a yeah. good song. It's not a made-up thing. Mm-mm. These Even are people that study— the data behind music. And now, more than ever, there's more data about how we listen to music. And it's manipulating us more than ever. Oh, yeah. Right. They're I, making a lot of money. After reading this article and some other things I've seen, just, you know, reporting and things, you you start to see, like, really is, do I think this is popular or do I think I think it's popular? And, you know? and what is it that you like about music? It used to be like a, they used to think you liked a genre. Right. But now, like, genres may be going away. You might just like to hear drums at a certain rate and rhythm uh-huh. and tonal quality, and you'll listen to those all day. You like it when people sing at a certain key yes. that hits whatever mm-hmm. mental resonance, and you want that, we want more of that. So some, some people want, like, their music to be on key, on pitch. I go, some don't care. When I go to uh, it's hmm. Pandora, yeah, right, and you put in a song you want to hear or an artist you want to hear. So I'll put in a band. And then every song they play yeah. is other songs that I already listened to. Oh, right? re- really? Yeah. Because they, like, know. they every, know. Every band, every single song, I go, oh, I like that one. I like that one. Then I'm like, well, I guess I have a type. You are a type. That was my thought. Yeah. But now after reading this. You have an algorithm. Though, I have too. an they algorithm. Have, they have an algorithm on you. They figured me out. And it's really simple. It's just a lot of screaming. Yeah. And lots uh, of rage. Lots of yeah. loud, like highest volume possible. Uh-huh. If I think it's deafening is the level. This Anything that's deafening is your kind of music. Mm. Is this Slim Whitman? Yeah, some might call this deafening, 
No. But others might call it soothing. In fact, I think this is part of your treatment to get you back into work today. Oh, yeah, I can feel it. It's lowering my heart rate. Explosive, if that's how the movie works. I'm calling you. There we go. (sighs) This was popular. It still is. Eh. I mean, there's like 80 people that can't get enough of this. I saw, it was years ago, but there was a 60 Minutes report. They talked to a musicologist probably yeah yeah but the guy talked to you was back in the day you had mozart mm-hmm. right highly complicated music right really popular yeah and he goes fast forward you know several hundred years you had the big band era oh yeah oh right? what a great era that not was. as complicated no lots of instruments lots yeah. of different sounds but kind of more i mean it, it sounded more complicated right and then he goes as you move through the 20th century the one thing he says is very apparent is that it becomes less complicated with more bass. Oh, yeah. And that's how our music is. Now we have more bass. Well, we also have... It's all about that bass. Yeah, that's what I heard. And, and he kept showing... Now, he was selecting you know, the music that fit the narrative he was trying to share, but you start seeing how our music starts yeah. to be simplified and it turns into bass. And now we have uh, certain popular groups that their entire music, is they sit at a computer. Oh, Totally. And no, so, yeah, I mean, there's that, no that in- making 20, 30, 40 million a year now, just what, sitting there. What Your they, son's one of those people, right? Not yet, not okay. yet, but he'd like to be someday. What they do is, is interesting. Huge. It takes talent yeah. to build that music, right? but it's not like an instrument. It's no. not a guitar. It's right. not, you know, you're not sitting well, there. I mean, and then you know. there's Miley Cyrus. Oh, yeah. Total train wreck, but beautiful I voice. Came like she came in and just wrecked it. She, by the way, did you see her with Jimmy Fallon in the subway? Yes, that was good. Fantastic. Yeah, she can sing. She's when you got hear her. pipes. Is this where they just have big, huge singers down in the subway and see if people will even notice? Yeah, and okay. it actually, it's, I think it's, I think it's a rat abatement technique. Is that it's, what it is? It's trying to get rats out of the subway, but. Um, it, I mean, it's awesome. She sets up. She's wearing a wig and she starts singing like an old. Country, I think it's an old country song. I think so, yeah. And uh, she killed it. She's great. Yeah. Boy. And Jimmy Fallon, did honestly, it's the first time I've seen Jimmy Fallon not quite know what to do. Right. He because did, he, she was carrying everything. Really? Yeah. And he, he could, just he could danced laugh. around. He couldn't laugh uncomfortably yeah, he at couldn't, everything. He, so. couldn't just, he couldn't just laugh her up. So she killed it. Anyway, it was really cool. So we'll, we'll get into... We'll get into celebrating music and uh, understanding how data is transforming the music industry. It's also interesting, too, how it's allowing us to track how music's actually being played now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're breaking down the genres, which I think is super cool as well. Um, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, also, um, it's – I don't know if you heard about this. we got to talk about it. But Scaramucci, the mooch. The mooch. Gone. Yeah. We just talked about him yesterday on the show with – about being like With Joe Cannon. About being overwhelming. And it was embarrassing. I went home and my dad said, Scaramucci's out. I know. What? Yeah, that's why I didn't come in for that show. I yeah. had a feeling. You had a no. feeling something yeah, was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. The mooch was going to get in trouble. But, uh, boy, things have changed. You bring in a four-star general and his first decision is to get rid of the mooch. Allegedly. 
Yeah, well, well, the four-star general. We're had, not exactly sure how it happened. It's but like he got rid of the mooch. I mean, the mooch there, is gone. Well, there's some people saying it's him. Other people saying that the president first kind of supported what he did. He thought it was yeah, funny yeah. in that interview with uh, the New Yorker. And then started seeing how nobody else thought it was funny. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, some of the media that usually is really supportive of Trump was not supportive of this choice. Did you see the news out that uh, General Kelly, what was it, what's his first name? General. John. John. General John Kelly. John Kelly, who's the new chief of staff for President Trump. He actually was angry about how Trump fired Comey. Yes. And so I mm. wonder if that's going to create a little... Uh, intrigue yeah i read up that was a i mean trump's still mad about comey yeah and still enjoys that he fired him the way he did i read a little a little about scaramucci he has had a quite eventful week because not only did he lose his job he had a baby and he got a divorce did he really yes was the baby mommy and the wife the same one he divorced yes his, wow. his, his baby he had a big week and he died. His son was born on Wednesday when he was with Trump at the Boy Scout Jamboree. He wasn't there. Well, I mean, they're getting a divorce, right? So well, that, that's been still, in the works for a while. They've been the separated sons. for a while. He sent a text, something like, congratulations. I hope all went well. Something like that. Congratulations, honey, on delivering Not our honey. child. They're getting a divorce. Oh, yeah, the right. article that I read made it sound like she maybe was induced purposely while he was gone so he couldn't be there. Oh, Wow. You, well, and plus, and plus he died. She was I don't interviewed. know if you heard the Scaramucci well, died according to the Harvard Law yeah. Alumni Directory. Whoa. And <laughs> now his estate is worth billions of dollars because that's as, how it works. You make all the money after yeah. you die. Now, Harvard apologized. They marked him as dead and then said, sorry, it's a mistake. Apparently, <laughs> the, the report of the we'll demise of 53-year-old Scaramucci was ill-timed. We'll fix it in five he years. He is not dead. When was the last time you accomplished that much in a week? Boy, in 11 days, not ever. I have never been that offensive. Uh, <laughs> what, led to three firings, I yeah, think, three, and yeah. then was fired. Yeah. His wife said, uh, I read a quote from her saying that the kind of the reason for the divorce had to do with um, there wasn't enough room for both of them and the ego in oh, the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, and I heard, I mean, it's hard to, because he loves Trump so much. Yeah. Like, love loves him. A lot of love there. Six times he used the word love in like one interview. Uh, okay, so we'll get to all of that fun, plus uh, just the exciting news of a new chief of staff that might bring some discipline to the White House. Right, that, that's, that's totally... happened all the other times. But, the, but the, the well, I, but except, I don't know that you've ever had this. I mean, apparently, too, he's been given everybody reports through him. Everybody, right? even Ivanka. Sure, that's totally going to happen. She's going to go talk to somebody else before she talks to her dad. Yeah. And she's just down the hall. Sure. We'll see. But, I mean, maybe so maybe that is Ivanka and Jared Kushner's way of saying this is the last shot. Yeah, we'll see. If we can't get control of this president, <laughs> something's in trouble. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? So over the weekend, a dozen Alabama inmates cooked up a plot to hoodwink, as it says, a new employee at the Walker County Jail using peanut butter to trick the staffer into opening an alternate door over the weekend. Um, so there was a new guy. He was manning the switch, the switches that open and close the new guy, different doors in the jailhouse, and uh, they covered up a sign with peanut butter, like say it said twenty one, and then they covered up the two with peanut butter, so it said one something like that. Yeah, open door one, and he, he opened the door that led him all out 
of the jail, so 12 guys ran out the door. And they've caught 11 of them. It's always the new guy. It's always the new guy. Brother and peanut butter. So the, there's one guy still at large. They're, they're trying to grab him, but it was just funny. They said, they, uh, yeah, he, he went after the new guy. Imagine what he would have done if it was crunchy peanut butter. Oh, that would have have been been a disaster. Such a better story. Los Angeles reached an agreement Monday with international Olympic leaders that will open the way for the city to host the 2028 Summer Games while ceding the 2024 Games to Paris. Mm. Because this will be, what, the third time they've they've, uh, hosted the Games in 1932, 1984, and 2028. Now, because they took a second, they took a step back and Paris will take 2024... Then the uh, Olympic Committee is uh, could give them up to two billion dollars to help out with their efforts. Wow, are they giving away money? No, just to help with the Olympics. Okay, because yeah. I I need a loan. Seems uh, interesting, but yeah, you got an eleven year wait for the Olympics. So oh, go ahead and boy. set your clocks. Uh, having ended their title drought, the Chicago Cubs want their most notorious fan to share in their good fortune. The Cubs announced Monday they were giving a World Series ring to Steve Bartman. Who deflected a foul ball that may have landed the uh, in left fielder Moises a lose glove in Chicago's five outs from the World Series in 2003. Oh, you remember yeah, that guy? Yeah, that guy. He had a ball cap on, headphones, yeah. turtleneck, glasses, and his life was ruined because he reached out and touched a ball. But that they're was now in play pardoning still. him. They're giving him a World Series ring. Well, they only wow. they're only doing that because now they all have rings because yeah. they just won. So they give him a ring. Chicago, they beat Cleveland That's nice. last fall. Because his life has been ruined. The Cubs say they hope this provides closure on an unfortunate chapter. Bartman was actually quoted. He's been in hiding since twenty, you know, two thousand three, basically. Ooh. He's con- he, uh, he says he continues to be fully embraced by the organization. Bartman released a statement saying he is deeply moved and, and is sincerely grateful. My hope is that we can all learn from my experience to view sports as entertainment. Yeah, right, dude. And he went on doing. You know, can you see him at, at like a? a Bar party no. talking about, hey, look at my new, look at my championship ring. Yeah, no. Now, I, who are you again? Oh, I'm the guy that. Yeah. You remember me? He lives in Chicago. <laughs> There's been several reporters who have. I can't uh, believe he lives there. He they should have, have moved by now. They have found him, and he, they try to talk to him in parking garages, and he's like, oh, leave me alone. Runs and hides in his car. And Wasn't runs away. it? Was his last name Scaramucci? No, it was Bartman. Okay. But, uh, yeah, but he, I mean, if you think he's got the ball cap on yeah, yeah, and I the remember. headphones. I think he was listening to a podcast. And the, he's listening to the radio broadcast of the oh, game. The Matt Townsend now, show. He had all that stuff on. All he had to do is he takes off the hat, that's puts right. in some contacts, and disappears into a crowd because you have no that's idea right. what he looks like. Walk away. Except Walk his away. name. So I don't then, know. Uh, you change your name and then you. I don't think he's changed his name. I think he's... it was the turtleneck that gave it away because who wears a turtleneck who wears anymore? A turtleneck. But if you remember back then, one of the newspapers in Chicago actually published his address and phone number. Oh, that's, that's rude. rude. He said, go get him. That was uh. like the next day. Uh, Dutch police arrested five Romanian men suspected of stealing iPhones worth $590,000 in a dangerous heist on a moving truck. Mm. The five men, aged 33 to 43, allegedly stole the iPhones in a late-night raid a week ago, driving a modified van so close to de- the uh, delivery truck that one of the suspects was able to cla- uh, climb across the van's hood and break into the truck while it was moving. Whoa. So the suspects then passed boxes of the iPhones back to the van as they cut uh, a hole through the roof of the van. So they're, he's in the back, and he's just kind of tossing to the guy standing there, and he's dropping him in the van. Oh, my heavens. And uh, the, the police thought this would never have happened. They said, this is ridiculous. No one is going to do a heist as the vehicles are moving. Now they're rethinking Wrong. This, this is totally out of Fast and the Furious. 
I don't know if they've done this yet, but well, now they've got an idea. I think it's the premise for part that'll, nine. Yeah, that'll be part nine. Hold on, have they had eight? Yeah. Was it good? Uh, I didn't see it. Was it fast? I've seen the first one. There was and a submarine. Part of part five. Was there? Was was it furious? Er. Er. Uh, there was an eight in the title, and it was the fate mm. of the furious. This is true. This is intense. Yeah. Wow. So. Uh, I guess is it going to be harder to find an iPhone now? No. Okay. They make millions. They still yeah, they'll be fine. A few. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, it's just a little heist. Maybe in the Netherlands it'll be a little difficult, but yeah. the rest of the world we're fine. Yeah. So we're not in the Netherlands, so it's fine. Too bad for you guys. <laughs> not to be rude. Hey, got uh, a lot to talk about. Up next, we're going to be talking with Brian Moon about how data is transforming the music industry. He's a full-blown musicologist. Right now, how many times did you have a friend in high school say, "I'm going to be a musicologist someday"? He mix uh, he mixes music. He mixes music and studies it in depth. As we are going to continue the journey straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, how we listen to music is changing the industry. App subscriptions like Spotify, online radio like Pandora, and even our internet searches use big data to figure out what drives our music taste. Or is it just that companies use the big data to influence what we listen to and what we enjoy? So who's leading the music choices uh, today? We'll get into that. Our, here to answer a few questions about it is Dr. Brian Moon. He's an assistant professor at the Fred Fox School of Music, where he is the coordinator of music and general studies at the University of Arizona and is also a musicologist. Dr. Brian Moon, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, it's great to great to talk to you. Now, how cool are you? You have the job every teenage kid wants to have, a musicologist. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, uh, I kind of came to popular music um, sideways. I, a lot of, I, I wasn't um, originally setting out to be a pop and rock uh, scholar. I, I just stepped into it because I kept teaching pop and rock. So that's, but you've, yeah, uh, now, now you're like, I'm a musicologist. Hey, this yeah, is, yeah, um, I, this is such a crazy thing because I, I have a son that, uh, actually makes money on Spotify and, you know, he's, he, he's actually out on an LDS mission, but he, you know, is able to bring home six or $700 a month right now because he puts, oh, he puts some, um, some what are they called uh covers some music covers out on spotify and some of them have become kind of popular but it's crazy that a 20 year old kid can make music that quickly on a system like spotify talk to us about how the music industry is changing and uh and how it's going big data well uh so you're you've kind of zeroed right in on on a on a major shift that um so on, on terrestrial radio, on, on traditional sort of broadcast radio, um, there uh, your son wouldn't be making money actually, right? Uh, because there's no there's no performance right for for most radio stations. Um, still, there's just a, a recording or a mechanical right and a and a musical work or the right of the composer of the original song. But for streaming radio, um, there's also a performance rate. So the musicians involved, um, like your son, get 
paid as well. Um, similarly on, on YouTube and on um, and other services that stream. So there's there's a, and that's a tremendous shift, but it also means that that there's the possibility for people to make a living at music that might not have been able to make mm. a living at music, um, you know, uh, 20, 20 years or so ago. Um, the um, the pot the the nice thing about about this shift and and the one thing that that is uh, gives me a lot of hope is is that there's the possibility that more and more people can still maintain and and create some space for themselves within broadly within music by by doing things like what your son's doing so it's it really is a it's an amazing thing because too I, I the way I see it working on Spotify and this is can help us I guess get more into the discussion about the data is like they they can put somebody like Ed Sheeran a really big uh a really big singer popular has a lot mm-hmm. of followers but my son might play music similar to Ed Sheeran and so they'll play Ed Sheeran and then one song they'll play would be my son's song because it tends to follow some of the parameters of Ed Sheeran's music. So now it's almost like you don't even need to be you don't even need to love a genre of music. You don't even need to necessarily love one musician. The these these systems and and these sites now can identify the tonal quality, the bass beat, the the drum beat the the volume um, and and find music that exactly meets what you love. Yeah, the um, uh, and Pandora really drove that that concept uh, and the and the sort of computer algorithms behind Pandora uh, begin this you know before uh, before some of the other companies. Um, the idea of a uh, was originally called a musical footprint that every recording would be distinct and therefore would have traits in it that could be parsed out and that you could then, um, or sorry, the musical genome was, was Pandora. Uh, uh, fingerprint was Shazam. I got early in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. For, uh, but, uh, um, uh, but Pandora began to, to play with this idea of, of um, identifying and breaking each song into over 300 little small parts so that if you liked 80% of, of song A, chances are you were going to like song B, C, and D, and, and that uh, system has only gotten better over time. And so then everyone has, has tried to find that predictive, um, predictive way of, of um, you know, helping people find new things. And yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've got a, a couple of friends that, are, um, that have, have made some, had some success because they, they're not, you know, they're not the Lumineers. They're not the, um, you know, a, a large group, but they, they have a sound, a local band that has a sound that's just slightly like that. And, and they find new audiences that way, not millions and millions of new new audiences, but they find tens of thousands and enough streams to, to help them make a living. So, How is this different than the way it used to be done, Brian? Is it, is, are, are we being led now Um more by this data, or is the is the industry just responding to the data? You know, it's it's a uh, there's still a possibility or a little of both, and and um, and so what I mean by that is is that um, terrestrial radio is still the heart of of where the music industry uh, and where stars can make money, and so they're they're well. Let me let, I guess let me step back. Um, in, in the 1980s, there were 25 artists that drove about 
approximately half of the domestic music industry's profits, a Mm. really small group. And part of that was because that small group, um, which you could probably come up with a list, you know, just off off the top of your head, uh, that small group was played the most on MTV and played the most on radio. And they dominated and uh, and therefore had the biggest record sales. And there's a sense that there's a little of that today. Um, you know, Taylor Swift, um, Drake, and 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 Adele, and and uh, Ed Sheeran, a handful of others, um, really do dominate radio. And because of that, there, you know, the the uh, there's this smaller smaller group of of people that are just really. Um, you know, earning earning a lot, and so there's a sense that it's almost cyclical in that that regard. It's kind of casting back to the '80s, um, and and if you go further back, I mean, there's a sort of that kind of broadly that idea happens where there's a few megastars and then and then uh, um, a lot of smaller stars. But but the smaller stars back in the '80s wouldn't have been able to kind of break through and 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 find that. You know that uh, day job version of of being a musician that the internet is now allowing, and um, so uh, so in that sense, um, and then in terms of how the the industry is leading us, the the radio stations still have programming managers. Uh, in fact, now um, I guess terrestrial radio stations. Are, or when I say that, I'm just talking about the radio stations that are built. To have their you know their um, signal built from a tower in the ground, they're um, they are still finding their music based on what they think is going to work, and what they think is going to work is now informed by data that mm. that um, they they test it. They they uh, in fact when you're trying to break a new artist now, you compile data that. Um, Played on this college radio station, and that was jammed 15 times in the, you know, in the first first time, and then 10,000 the next spin, and 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 you get whatever whatever information you can to prove that uh, that this person's going to succeed, um, that this is a trending topic on on Twitter when, you know, after after this commercial played, or whatever way that you can convince people that this is a song that is going to catch people's attention. Um, that's how you break it onto terrestrial radio, and once it plays on terrestrial radio, then it um, it stays there. Uh, and and also to some extent, um, the industry has always the, has always had a vested interest in cycling songs off. So the you know the best song of today, three months from now, it would be best for the industry if there was a new best song, if mm. there was something else that they could sell. Um, what the data is beginning to, is, to suggest is that we, you know, can kind of listen to a song for a little bit longer than than the industry kind of expects. That that we'll keep listening for a while, and uh, keeps us going back to playing the same song and you know yeah. keeping that. Plus, going. other ways like I've, we now have YouTube. You now have mm-hmm. social media. You have Shazam, so you can now, anytime you're hearing anything, you can, uh, you know, in your radio or wherever you are, you can direct your phone to Shazam. Click the Shazam button and find yeah. out exactly what song is playing, and that eventually affects, I guess, prioritization or or popularity. You've got Spotify. You've got iTunes. I mean, it used to be it seemed like people would have to put out an album. Um, but now you can just put out one song or three songs, and and yeah. those will sell like crazy. 
Yeah, and that's and artists are, uh, have begun to realize that and are releasing uh, uh, releasing songs, you know, individually and one at a time, and and uh, and and are beginning to realize that the record labels aren't even as important as they used to be. Um, Chance the rapper, you know, didn't sign with a record label because he didn't he uh, created his success through streaming media and through online um, services and. And the the old ways of so the the record industry was built on this idea that in order to pay for enough albums to be in all of the stores at one time, it cost too much money for an individual to hmm. to figure out, and so they funded that that side of it. They would make sure that the CDs were you know, the CDs or the LPs were going to be in all of the stores on the same day. Um, a, a huge undertaking, but now stores are less and less important in, in that transaction, and it's very easy for um, a couple of handful of, of online companies to ensure that your record is going to be on iTunes and Spotify and Pandora and yeah. all of those places for a small fee, so that uh, that uh, you know that most most people, if they are, are thoughtful, can get their their song out there it is amazing and then too they if you already have 20 million followers on social media you've already got your your audience right there just post it on your social media hey we just released a new whatever interesting stuff we're speaking with dr brian moon who is an assistant professor at the fred fox school of music and is also a coordinator of music and general studies at the university of arizona he is a musicologist walking us through the new world of uh music data and how data is driving the industry up next we'll continue the discussion also try to figure out what it means for the rest of us are we going to get more of what we want uh in an easier more accessible way are we going to be pushed more of what we maybe don't want to be listening to all up next right here on the matt townsend show on sirius xm 143 byu radio Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Brian Moon. Brian is a musicologist who specializes in America's music and is currently an assistant professor at the Fred Fox School of Music, where he is the coordinator of music and general studies at the University of Arizona. And uh, he's also affiliated with the University of Arizona's General Education Academy. And, Brian, we appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Yes, uh, my pleasure. And we know it's early well, there in Arizona. We uh, woke you up a bit, probably. Uh, well, no, yeah. Poor guy, expecting it a little a little later. Um, Brian, help me understand, because data, it's all about data, and they used to have the charts, right? They used to have, they used to have the numbers. They used to know how many people were listening, um, because it was all being run through kind of the terrestrial radio world. Is talk about what's happening though, and what's the difference, like with how social media now influences music and and um, other sources of data. Is it is it changing? Do you sense the future of how we will be purchasing and and being drawn to music in the future? In in a sense, yes. The, so the one of the the history of the charts in America um, is a history of trying to make something that seems objective and that stands 
you know, as if it is pure data, but has always needed to be approximated. And, and over time, uh, it's become more and more specific. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't until the early 90s that that the charts began to incorporate information like sales data. And when it did, it suddenly changed the charts tremendously. That uh, Suddenly country music and hip-hop music began to dominate the charts because that's what people bought. Um, and, and the sort of more subjective ways that the charts were sort of being made to turn over uh, weren't capturing that. Um, increasingly, data is... is driving the charts and and um and yet it's still changing it's only been since january that pandora uh streams have been a part of the hot 100 you know so the most popular song um, in america in 2016 didn't account for pandora at all hmm. and, and so as as these new uh, pieces of information are coming into it it's going to continue to make people and and in, in that the hot 100 is also what drives what plays on your you know, on your car radio, if you don't, if you're not lucky enough to have a serious, you know, serious station, um, the so so information and and that information is beginning to shape what we think is popular. There there are new charts that you you mentioned social media. The Billboard magazine now charts a social 50, um, the top 50 trending artists on various social media platforms on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on um, Instagram, and, and trying to incorporate that into, you know, so is, is Miley Cyrus the, or Justin Bieber. And, and in some ways, artists now are, are um, enjoying being able to, you know, because they can, they can create movement on that chart themselves just from, um, you know, from a silly tweet or a, or, or a, a trending topic or, or being a part of something. So um, all of these things are beginning to shape popularity, and that then in turn feeds what what plays and, and what gets the most exposure. And and so to some extent, um, what what we hear is is driven by all of this. Now at the same time, you know we um, we we like to think and 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 that it's purely our taste that is the, and the the most successful thing is the thing that is going to receive the most exposure um there's that's still a there, there are still gatekeepers in the system um but those gatekeepers are becoming less effective because if we you know if we like a uh, a really interesting new cover of a of an existing song and and spotify or pandora or um, a service learns that uh, or or we just become good at finding that for ourselves on the internet then, then we're going to discover your son or, or whomever. We're going to we're going to find ways to find to find to find this. Um, the in the 1990s, the laws that governed how many radio stations uh, an individual could own changed, and uh, and suddenly um, a few companies owned many of the radio stations in America, and and and, uh, and even to this day, many many radio stations are owned by a handful of companies. And originally, people thought, "Oh, that's just going to dis- all the music's going to become the same, and it's not going to have any diversity." And um, and yet, at the same time, the internet happened, <laughs> and that and that has constantly meant that the next new thing is out there, even if um, even if only a small group of people found it. And um, yeah, and and so it's it keeps some turnover.
It's, I, I kind of danced around your question a little no, bit. No, that's all right. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's just such a different world. And, I mean, it used to be the big thing was get the label, you know, get the big name behind you. The big label would market you, publicize you. Um, but And we see a lot of it uh, because kind of Utah is one of the, I don't know, just a, a great creator of um, YouTube personalities. And so now it's kind of you can build your own audience. Uh, you don't need to even go through the big labels. But it's interesting that once you've accumulated two or three million subscribers on YouTube, all of a sudden the big labels look at you. So it might even yeah. be easier to just accumulate your database first, then let the labels find you. Um, or like a guy, I don't know if you know, um, and I can't remember his name, uh, but he's he his he, his brand is sleeping at last. His name is Ryan something, but um, he, yeah, I, he, I, he I, I kind of know who you're talking about. He's he's just he's just a really humble guy that puts together great music. But I think he's even he even just likes the more simple life where I'll just kind of make my money online. And he's yeah. he's he's had some music played in some uh, in some really big. Ryan O'Neill is his name yeah. from Sleeping at Last. And, I mean, he's had music played in uh, some really big-name movies, but he he really kind of, I think, would rather just be a dad and a husband. Uh-huh. And I guess now you can almost carve out this niche for whatever you want in this industry. That I, I remember um, back in 2001 or two that, that I began to discover people like that, people that – we're fine not being the multi-millionaire, like, you know, huge star that had to be in stadiums a uh, hundred nights a year. They, they were just, they were beginning to realize that they could create a, a life for themselves by generating online content in a way that, that generated an audience. And, and, uh, and it's, it's not that that's an easy, you know, no. it's, a, it's an eight hour, 40 hour a week, eight hour a day, 40 hour a week job of, you know, your job is writing songs and producing new content, but, but, um, it's, it is possible. And, uh, so that, that's the, that's the sort of optimistic and positive side of, of, um, of all of these changes is that it does create a little space for, for people to find an audience. It doesn't make, it doesn't make it easier, but, no. but it is, it is, you know, it's a possibility, a, a talented musician that, um, and 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 as 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 you mentioned that you know the possibility that you can have a life that is not the pop star rock star life that you can have a, a life that yeah that's a it, that's one of the more exciting things I think about this in terms of I just I I like that there is more space out there it's just that that space is um you know it's it's it, it does it, it it's there is something to say about the live performance and seeing the person and, and you know. Yeah. No, t- totally. Tours are now, t- tours are now are often using this kind of information. I, so I, I have some artists that I really enjoy and I, and, uh, and I'm aware that sometimes I'm, I'm the one fan of the artist, you know, in the town. And so the artist doesn't come through the town very often because they know while all of the Facebook likes are not from Southern Arizona, uh, where the, where Tucson and the university of Arizona is. So, they're not going to send their artist on a tour through Southern Arizona. They're going to send it through, you know, through um, uh, Provost or, yeah. or wherever. They're going to they're going to send it to where there's a concentration of fans, and then they're going to book clubs 
or, or venues based on the size of that. The uh, data is, is driving that part of the that's, industry as well. That's true. I guess you, yeah, you don't have the tour that just kind of stops in every town anymore. Now they're so efficient, they know exactly what town to stop in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if, there's a, if there are um, 50,000 Instagram followers in, in Phoenix uh, and, and 5,000 in Tucson, then they're going to put on a big show in Phoenix. And, and um, it, it, that, so that, that kind of information is, is, um, is another side of the data. And, and companies are now managing data, trying to figure out how this, uh, how this, how, how you can take information that's out there and turn it into ways to make decisions based more efficiently, more, you know, and so, mm. uh, so do, it's a, it's a, do you sense this is an end to kind of terrestrial radio, you know, a dominance over the music world? What, you know, the, and the, the money still is in, is in the, in the terrestrial radio, um, I uh, I know that um, I believe I believe it was earlier this year that uh, the committee that 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 deals with copyright brought up the performance right on terrestrial radio once more. It comes up about every you know uh, at the beginning of every presidential administration, regardless of who's in the White House, uh, it pops up. And so I the, the the most of the money is still in terrestrial radio, and, and that's because and and particularly now that that fewer companies own more of the stations. Um, so while one stream on Spotify, you know, generates 0.003 of a penny, um, the uh, you can get three cents per stream on a radio. And, and, and if you're playing on 500 radio stations, you're going to, that that's going to add up a lot faster. And so the, the, the radio stations are still where the, the money is, um, but as as uh, smart, you know, as our radio and our car get smarter, and are more likely to be internet equipped, and we can get away from from that, and we can begin to stream shows like your your uh, radio show and, and other things in our car easily. I I don't know. I'm, it, it'll be interesting. It's it's a. I I don't I don't want to uh, I don't know enough to say what's what radio what that kind of radio is going to be in another 20 years, but it's not, I, I'm not looking to put my retirement yeah. accounts in it yet. Um, but it will change the revenue model. I mean, it's a different revenue model online and I, I it, which is interesting because after Napster, you know, it seemed like this was turning the entire industry upside down. And now it seems like the industry's learning other ways to make yeah. a lot of money on their music. Yeah, and well, and and I mean, and also the industry is much smaller. It was a, it was uh, even though last year, twenty sixteen, was the first year that the industry grew, you know, sort of began to show growth again. Uh, that was because it had shrunk so much, and mm. and and it between you know two thousand and and two thousand. Uh, I think it was about nine or ten. It was just getting. It, it's significantly smaller. Um, and, and yet there are still so uh, people for a long time, people thought that the that the album sales records that were from the from the night, you know, the 20th century, that they were going to stand forever because albums weren't going to sell that way. And then you have Adele and Taylor Swift and, mm-hmm. and others that that 
are actually still breaking some of those. And, um, and that suggests that there is, that there is still the space for a few stars to really gain an enormous amount of exposure. And, and the way that you do that is, is often through traditional radio stations. So yeah. it's, um, it's it, there, there are bits of, of the old models that are still in the new. Yeah. No, Brian, I think it's fascinating. And it's great work that you're doing, helping us understand a little bit better what's going on with the data in music and what's behind it. We appreciate your time and keep up your great work there at the University of Arizona. Uh, Brian Moon is his name. He's a musicologist studying America's music. Up next, we'll continue the journey, uh, give you more insight, more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it, nothing is more constant than change, right? So you, there is one thing that is more constant than even the fact that life is going to change, and that is the fact that there are principles that you can lead your life by to create healthy change. And, uh, again, I've seen it. I've seen the music industry um, single-handedly change my son that had a little anxiety, a little uh, social anxiety, and he was able to, in his own room, on his own computer, in his own way, build content that was marketable. It actually created a career for him. He knows how to edit video and audio and sound. He knows how to post stuff on YouTube. He's had some of his things on YouTube reach millions of people, and and he's able to get subscribers. He understands the industry. And it's become even better for him than a job internship. He's been able to meet people, and his self-esteem grows, plus his pocketbook grows. Who would have thought that you don't need a degree, you don't need millions of dollars of equipment, you don't even need a major backing from an agent, you just need a few connections, and boy, it's, it seems to be leveling out the playing field. And for this father, it's, it's a pretty hopeful thing. Hopefully, we all can see the benefits of it. And the ability to control the type of music that comes into our home, it might even be a little easier and a little harder when it comes to the complexity of this uh, of technology as well. Anyway, giving you some insight, some hope there. Up next, we've got a whole other hour of fun, interesting stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. The gang's all here, folks, and we are locked and loaded Doing what we can on this program to help you get uh, the information, the tools you need to live a healthier life. Today, no exception, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, our psychiatrist from Yale University uh, and Yale Med School, he is going to he's going to walk us through ADHD. Apparently, he thinks we you know we could benefit from a better diagnosis. 
And as Stephen Wright likes to say, he has HD ADHD. Ooh, high def ADHD. It's uh, a lot of people, like I think 5% of our kids are now being diagnosed with it. But interestingly, in in Great Britain, only 3%. Really? Are being diagnosed there. Well, so they have it, that socialized healthcare thing. Yeah, too, so do they so. do it better or worse nah. than us? Are we just overdiagnosing? Oh. I think Dr. Ninavaji is thinking we might be. It's a very complicated diagnosis. And so he's, and by the way, he's a very complicated man. He is probably the single smartest human being I know. Is there an argument for we have a bunch of pills and we have to give them to somebody? Yeah. So that might be the argument. But. It works. So when you – if you have pills that work and it helps somebody focus and pay attention, that's better than them maybe growing into low self-esteem, oh. truancy issues, hating school and never you know doing anything. But if they don't need to be diagnosed with and given meds but instead they just need to learn to, to focus – and to have a plan, and they need to maybe be taught differently. Are those the side effects of the pills? Like your kid will love school? You're actually, one of the side effects is they can actually focus. Oh. I think Terry brings up a good point, though. Either we give them to responsible people, or they're going to end up on the streets. Well, yeah. You guys sound like drug dealers. Hmm. Have, have you been... Is there something I missed yesterday when I was gone that you guys no. are now so pro? Oh, no. I think we just, we've just we watched similar TV shows, so we kind of know oh, how yeah. this works. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, because I was sick all weekend. So we, we speculated watched, on which shows you watched, watched on Netflix. I watched an entire series, and I will, let, I will fill you in off air. Sweet Valley High? <laughs> no. Oh. But that just made my Pretty turn. Little Liars? No. No. Hmm. No. Nashville? Oh, my heavens. How did you know? Nashville. How did you guess? <laughs> I love me some Nashville. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, he'll be with us talking about ADHD and uh, and because it really is maybe three different diagnoses or more that we should be paying attention to. And some of them might be better served with meds like the, my boys want to do here. And others uh, might be better served with just better education. Um, we'll, we'll get to all of that straight ahead on, on uh, did ADHD. You, did you finish Gilmore Girls finally? Or? Oh, my heavens. I've never cried more. Oh, well, Kleenex says bless you. You know, I can't watch Gilmore Girls either for some reason. Yeah, I can't either. But I love Downton Abbey. Oh, yeah. What do you mean, yeah? I did, there's there's intrigue on Downton Abbey. I loved it. Uh, all of a sudden, you care so much that mm-hmm. the housekeeper was rude to the cook. Yeah. Like, that cook did not deserve that. No, right, exactly. Like, treat him with respect. By the way, um, I realize that sometimes I'll watch a Netflix series that really brings me down. Yeah. And when I, start, a few of those. when I start to fall into too deep of a funk, I found a way out, which is what, who I call – he's not a real doctor, but I call him Dr. Bob Ross. Oh. Oh, right. Painting with Dr. Bob Ross. Which painting? He's not a doctor, but painting with Bob Ross, and he just makes me happy again. I thought you were just going to say that you simply turned off the TV. Oh, no, no, no. no. Oh, okay. No. Read a book, learned a skill, mm. walked outside in the sunshine. No, Talked to your children. Just more TV. I, when I say I'm watching Bob Ross, some of my kids will gather around. Some of them. They like it. It's mm. a very calming family activity. And we talk about colors and contrasts and that there are no mistakes. Just you We'll can, make that a bird. It's just a chance. That's just another chance to learn. This is never, ever overlook a chance to learn. Wow. A learning experience. That's Dr. Bob Ross. That's good.
Love that guy. Mm. Oh, I want to be Bob Ross when I grow up. Well, you've got a few years. And you need more hair. I totally do. And you need a huge, uh, what are those? Uh, palette. Palette. Yes. Ah, He's just amazing. And I keep thinking, I could do it. I really know inside of me, I have the gifts to do that. But I, I don't, I'm not in a position to start trying to grow other gifts yet. Well, mm. start training that afro. Yeah. You have to tease it more. I know. I don't know. It's, I'm afraid if I tease my hair too much, I might lose it. Just, I'm trying to keep it all home. Understood. We've got uh, that uh, straight ahead, plus crazy headlines as well. I mean, we've got so much to cover, so we'll get to the empty news. And uh, we've got the throwdown. Um, Pluto is taking on uh, this mass. What are we calling it? Just a mass? Of... I think we're just calling it the mysterious mass. There's a mysterious mass out near Pluto. He's, he's basically challenged it to a duel fight or a cage fight. And Pluto and our show is feels it. like if he wins, then he can reclaim his planetary status. But mm. it was still never confirmed as to whether the IAU promised him anything. Well, I'm pretty sure he's not going to return to a planetary status. He's a dwarf planet. Don't don't let him. I mean, don't make him lose hope. Okay, but but so he's having the match, and we're sponsoring it. So today we'll also have to be we'll have to play the trailer. What do they call this? It the was promo part of, piece. It was part of our agreement with him coming on to do the interview last week. Yeah, we didn't really want to, but mm. yeah, we're not into promoting violence like interplanetary it's, violence. It's sport. Yeah, it's a big ticket, huge, huge. Uh, okay, so we'll get to that fun straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Tropical storm Emily weakened to a tropical depression Monday afternoon as it slogged eastward across the Florida Peninsula, spreading drenching rains, causing power outages, and leaving two fishermen to be rescued from Tampa Bay. The National Hurricane Center said Emily made landfall late Monday on Florida's Gulf Coast south of Tampa Bay and began moving east to the Atlantic coast. Emily spent only a few hours as a tropical storm losing strength as it marched inland. No injuries have been reported, although two fishermen were rescued in Tampa uh, from Tampa Bay when they, when they were clinging to a channel marker light, so a buoy, basically, after their boat flipped. Oh, boy. So they're just hanging out, and they went out just and got them. floating. Uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Netflix, along with their telecom industry foes, have not committed to sending their chief executives to testify before uh, U.S. Congress in September. On the future of net neutrality, not a single one of those companies told the powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee, which is convening the hearing, that they would dispatch their leaders to Washington in the coming weeks, even at a time when the Trump administration is preparing to kill the open Internet rules currently on the government's books. The panel initially asked those four tech giants, as well as AT&T, Charter, Comcast, and Verizon, to indicate their plans for the hearing by July 31st. For now, though, the committee said they were going to extend the deadline. Boy. So, so if you you set a meeting, you ask for all these people to show up, and then no one responds. What are you supposed to do? Do, no, you, do no, you have a meeting? No one RSVP'd for this. Well, then I would assume there's no meeting. But they're extending the deadline, so we'll see what happens. Uh, okay. Uh, bad news for millennials once again. They have passed baby boomers as the biggest living generation in the United States, according to the numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau. Really? They are seventy five point four million strong, compared to seventy four point nine million baby boomers. 
Boy. Immigration is counting to the upshift in numbers as well as the old age of baby boomers who have now been uh, passed for the first time. So Unbelievable. So somebody <clears throat> is even stronger than the baby boomer, the, the millennial. Yeah, except the, the millennials disinterested in most things, it seems. So yeah. we'll still hear from the baby boomers quite a bit. Right. Well, and the, and the millennials, um, they're not as old as the baby boomers. So right. they've got years to mess things up. Right. And they're not. You're a millennial. There you go. They've got their own theme song now. It's true. We were talking about YouTube a little bit last hour. University of Central Florida kicker Donald De La Hay has made the decision to give up football rather than give up making advertising money from YouTube videos that he makes. The university released a statement Monday saying that De La Hay did not accept the conditions of a waiver received from the NCAA that has been ruled in uh, he's been ruled ineligible to compete. Basically, the NCAA said you can make the videos, but you can't get paid. Holy cow! But he's got several videos uh, with fifty thousand or more views on those, and he does get some money from that. When you're in college, every little bit but helps. But this is the, this is the NCAA saying the only people that can make money on you is us. Yeah, it says he's a we're mar- the only one. He's a marketing major, made several videos, some depicting his everyday routine, some that dealt with his experience on the football team. Yeah. So he's getting exposure that way. The NCAA said no, and he goes, ah, "I won't play football." He played 13 games last season. He was a kickoff specialist, so he was out there. But what else? Whatever. whatever. Moving on. Interesting. This is gets into the whole thing we talk about all the time about should these players be made professional? Right. They're getting paid. They're getting schooling. They're getting food. They get clothes. You know, they get free tutoring. And now you can't post a video on YouTube that's popular. Yeah. That you'll get compensated for. Unless supposedly the university could get paid through doing it. Well, that's what the, the – when you sign your scholarship paperwork, it says that they get to make money off you. And you don't. Unbelievable. But, but you're getting a you're getting a education. Are you? That's what they say. That's yeah, kind of the selling point. Are you? Finally, this study out of the UK. One in eight UK young people have never seen a cow in real life. Real, real, a one cow. a cow. One in eight young people, meaning under eighteen, in the United Kingdom, have never seen a cow. Well, do they not like look out when they're driving on the train to nowhere? Well, because while they may have spotted a cow on TV, twelve percent of the eighteen to twenty-four year olds are so unfamiliar with the countryside that they have never seen cattle oh, in, in person. Yeah, it's probably inner city versus you know a, out in the a, country. A fifth say they have never left the city they live in. That's eighteen percent. Over half say it's more than a year since they climbed a tree. That's fifty-one percent. Twenty-nine percent that it's uh, long since they swam in a river. Four in ten confess their knowledge of the countryside is poor or extremely poor. At 42%. Wow. Apparently there's some countryside awareness campaign in the UK this week. So that's Cows are came people out. too. Yeah. That's amazing. It's could, true. Matt, could your children identify a cow? Yes. Yes. Sometimes they, they can I, identify they, with a cow. They We have cows in our neighborhood. Oh. Yeah. So we drive by and hey, and my kids are like, what's that big brown dog doing out there? Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, son, that's a cow. Mm. Oh. Is that why someone's milking them? Yes, son. He can identify milking, the activity of milking? Yeah. Wow. That's how advanced we are. That's great. In our little farmlet. It's like a townlet with a farm. Anyway, crazy. What's happening nowadays? We were talking about baby boomers versus millennials. So a lot of people give a bad name to the millennial thinking that they don't want to do anything. Well, they're ruining everything. Yeah. Now, why would they say that? Because they kind of are. 
But are they? I they're, mean, Jeff's a millennial. Yeah. Wrong. But no, he's he's like me. We're zennials. Yeah. We're this we're this neat little group in between X and millennials. We're zennials. We we don't quite identify with each group. Yeah, it's true. You're zennials. Did you hear about this woman? Um, this is the difference between a baby boomer. So if you're if you steal a taxi, you just steal it. Okay. Okay. And you're and you're like. You're you're gonna steal the taxi and mm-hmm. get out and I guess go drive yourself somewhere. Right. The difference is the millennial you would think maybe would be too um, disinterested to like earn a buck. Right. But the baby boomer, a Philadelphia police uh, say a 65 year old woman stole a taxi, hmm. but while she was driving around, she actually stopped and picked up fares. Oh. Make a little on the side. See, that's that's because they were Depression age. They grew up with parents of the Depression. So they they know the well, value of a buck. Oh, yeah. You've heard of the gig economy. Yeah. She was stealing it, eh, picked up a gig along the way and started taking yeah. fares. Everything's I mean, about – so now that she's got this asset of a taxi um, cab, she now is going around picking people up. It was um, on the way – so they say Betty Thomas caught the cab around midnight uh, uh, on Thursday. And on the way, she asked the driver to make a stop at a gas station. It was at the station where police say the woman then got into a dispute with the driver about the fare before jumping into the driver's seat and driving off. Police stopped the taxi 30 minutes later and found a 23-year-old woman and her infant in the back seat. The mother told the officers she had held the cab earlier, not realizing it was stolen. And that wonderful lady was willing to pick people up. Betty Thomas didn't just have to pick anyone up, but she was more than a thief. She was a cabbie. I'm, I don't think there's any video of this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say something outrageous. What? How do we know it wasn't the baby? Well, because babies can't reach the pedals. Can't they? No. They've got little baby legs. And they can't drive without a car seat. So I'm pretty sure she didn't bring a driving car seat. We do have that commercial uh, for the show. Uh, What is it? The night shift? North Carolina night shift? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the baby was stealing a car. Yeah, but it was a baby car, I think, wasn't it? I guess that's true. It was a little baby car. So, yeah, it, the baby wasn't driving. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's sad. But, again, a, a, a millennial's different than a baby boomer in how they steal cabs. Um, let's, let's get this over with. Uh, it sounds so negative. You know, last week we spoke with Pluto about his upcoming fight with the uh, mysterious mass that's disrupting the orbit of other planets. And in exchange for the interview, which I'm never really happy interviewing him, Pluto. Really? Pluto. Oh, he might be sad to hear that. Well, I mean, he's a nice planet uh, for a dwarf planet. He's just not, I don't know, we're not as, I I like other planets more, I think, regular planets. Um, But in the interview, he, uh, we promised him that we would promote his big event coming up in a couple of weeks, um, it's it's a throwdown between him and this uh, mysterious mass. Here's the promo. 
This summer, the stars are aligning for the biggest fight in the history of the galaxy, right here in our own backyard. I'm speaking, of course, about mayhem in the Milky Way, in which dwarf planet Pluto will go head-to-head with a galactic orbit disruptor known simply as the mysterious mass in a no-holds-barred fight-to-the-finish cage match in an effort to win the Orion Belt and reclaim his planetary title. Here's a sneak peek at one of Pluto's training sessions with his former fighter manager, Iris, also a dwarf planet himself. Faster! Faster! Uh, Keep it moving! Pick it up! Pick it up! Don't give up! I said don't give up! No, 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 stop! I said stop what you're doing! What do you think you're doing? You want to stop being known as a dwarf planet? Then stop fighting like one. Otherwise, you're never going to beat this mysterious mass of gas. Because he'll kill you to death in two rounds. The mysterious mass? Please. That guy's a bum. You're the bum, Mo. You're not listening to me. This guy don't just want to win. He wants to bury you. He wants to prove to the whole galaxy that you was nothing but some kind of a... That that your classification was some kind of a freak accident the first time out. You know what? Forget it. I, I quit. I quit. What? You don't think I can beat this guy? Well, Mo, let me... Let's, let's put it this way. Ten years ago, you was huge. You was intergalactic. But then the worst thing happened to you. That could happen to any planet. You got declassified. So now I think maybe you ought to be put out the pasture. No. No, I can do it, Iris. It's over, Mo. Nothing is over. Who will win? A mysterious mass that's getting bigger by the minute. Or the washed-up, declassified gas bag that is Pluto. Tune into Mayhem in the Milky Way to find out. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you've heard about uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You may even think you know somebody that has it. Um, and yet, boy, it's it seems like it's being diagnosed more and more. And, uh, and yet, it's so common here in the United States, about 5% of children, about 2.5% of adults. But in other countries, they, they're not diagnosing as many people at the same rate as we are. So are we over-diagnosing? Are we over-prescribing medicine for uh, ADHD? Is there a better approach? Well, here to walk us through his view of it is Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's a friend of the show. He's on regularly and is an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine Child Study Center. He's also a member of the Yale New Haven Community Medical Group and uh, is the author of his recent book, Biomental Child Development, Perspectives on Psychology and Parenting. And uh, we're honored to have you back, Frank. How are you doing today? Fine. Summer greetings from Yale New Haven Hospital. Oh, we love hearing your voice, Frank. And uh, to me, this ADHD, it's it's kind of, it seems like in a way become a catch-all for 
any kid that can't sit still, any kid that doesn't do well on tests or can't focus, and are we over-diagnosing it? Are we, are we throwing too many people into this category? In a word, we are, and you're right. Uh, but it is, like uh, most things, more complicated, more complex, because, <clears throat> as I say in the article for Psychology Today, which just came out, about a week ago, and has over uh, two two thousand hits already. Wow! Which is pretty fantastic yeah. for me. Um, <clears throat> I called it ADHD, a bundle of deplorable problems <laughs> masked in plain view. Performance deficits, the ADHD calling card. So, it is really a calling card, and the calling card is simply the ticket of entry of many, many children into the mental health system. And as I say in the article, and I tried to make it as clear, but as intelligently presented as possible, it really is only um, uh, the mask or the surface for a whole bundle of issues, really serious uh, problems that need to take priority and the ADHD um, diagnosis should not mask what is really underneath all that, although it usually does. And um, sadly enough, many providers, doctors, pediatricians, mental health professionals, only look at the mask and think that it is where it's at, the truth, and try to target it and treat it. And the standard treatment, the number one first-line treatment, is medication. And usually it's a stimulant medication, which is horrible because of the side effects. Mm. So it's, and I, I like that you're calling it, it's, um, you like to refer to it more as a performance deficit disorder. Yes. And and then in your piece, you really do – I mean, again, you do it as only Frank Ninavaji can do it with such incredible intellect. But what it really is is you say there's three different kind of uh, subtypes of ADHD that, that impact performance. Um, and maybe walk us through those, those three levels of, I guess, subsets. Right. Well, that's very consistent with uh, the standard conventional um, understanding. It's, it's not simply my idiosyncratic or personal view. Uh, all, you know, the, the, the DSM-5 and all of psychiatry, all of neuroscience that um, views ADHD as a disorder, a proper disorder, views it as having uh, three sub-issues, three sub-components. Two are main, and the third I'll talk about. The two main ones are inattention, that's the first. The second is hyperkinetic or overactivity, impulsivity. And the third is the combination of the inattention and the hyperkinetic impulsivity. Now, I like to not merely call inattention, inattention, because really uh, what we're talking about 
when we say inattention, that's a simplification for executive functions of the brain, of the person, of the personality, of how our mind, how critical thinking works, and its executive functions. And this is not simply the way I think about it, but it's the way very sophisticated workers in the area, neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, think of attention and attention deficit. It's a a dysfunction or a disorder of the executive functions, which means attention, concentration, working memory, um, time frames, seeing the future, planning, organizing, strategizing, devising a sequenced uh, plan for activating a goal, and then this is the key, and then activating the goal by putting all that went before into action, performing. Yeah. And usually and typically and by definition, the person with ADHD cannot perform. The person with ADHD usually has a normal to a high IQ, typically is very knowledgeable, has no generally, doesn't have a learning problem generally, is capable of understanding things, remembering, also recalling things in words, has a good knowledge base, but they cannot put it into action. Hmm. Well, They're sort of impotent in that sense. They cannot perform. And that really is the key to ADHD. Now, that's, um, that, that's kind of, especially in the executive functioning part, except it, 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 help me understand, because, for example, in the U.K., they're only diagnosing 3.5% of their uh, kids, I guess, um, with uh, ADHD, where we're diagnosing 5% of our kids with ADHD. And at what point is it actually a disorder versus just a child who has yet to learn how to create their own systems? They're working in an environment that doesn't necessarily isn't conducive to their form of learning and thinking. And they, but then they get, they get called, you know, they, they're, I diagnosed with ADHD, but they really just have never learned how to create their own system. Well, as usual, as usual, you've brilliantly answered your question. I mean, it's, that's the problem, right? Is that this yeah, is developmental growth, right? A lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is perspective. And a lot of it is the way a society is built. For instance, you won't see any of these statistics or diagnoses in countries uh, uh, where, uh, you know, the children are uh, coming from families where where there are uh, mother, father, five children in the family, a grandmother, grandfather, uncles, aunts living in the same house. Everyone's mm. doing a task, a job, uh, some going to school, some not going to school. Uh, everyone has a job to do, and they just do their job because that's the way it is. It's in our, the Western uh, culture, which is very highly refined, almost test tube-like. We're so um, sterilized that um, 
we are so focused on academics, academic success, and uh, ambition, competitiveness, and success in areas which really don't have to do with what used to be important, manual labor, productivity, family life, working as teams, that here, for instance, in the USA, uh, the culture, the society, values, perspectives are very different from other places. So we're more prone to, in a very microscopic way, look at how the child is performing in school, and then families are very demanding and want children to perform and outperform, usually more than they actually are capable, hmm. more than their brain capacity can yield. You know the old expression, getting blood out of a stone? Yeah. I see that every day. So you see parents are wanting so much more out of their children that right. they'd rather receive a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of ADHD than maybe just realize this child's different. This child is different and cannot do as much as the child who is gifted with capabilities and uh, abilities where excelling is easier yeah. and doesn't require medications. Many, I see, you know, it's a sort of a funny thing. I see families really believing that the, aid, the so-called ADHD medications increase intelligence and I wrote that in the article, they really believe that Ritalin, Adderall, Vyvanse, and all these stimulant pills increase intelligence. And everyone, every reasonable doctor, pediatrician, social worker, neuroscientist, knows that these meds don't. Hmm. What they do is boost the neurocircuitry in the brain, and they they may optimize the circuits that are already in place and there. So they help whatever's there work better, but not to a higher, higher, higher level commensurate with the wishes, fantasies, imaginations of, for instance, the parent who wants their child to be a doctor, a lawyer, or excel beyond the child's capacity. Hmm. Yeah. Powerful. So it's so in a way, as we look at uh, the performance performance deficit disorder, ADHD, yeah. as we break it into kind of executive functioning and inattentiveness, hyperkinetic or a combination of both, you're saying in, in certain situations, all the child might need isn't any pharmaceutical intervention. They may just simply need educational intervention to help them create systems, habits, behavior patterns, ways to make it through their day in a more organized, healthy way? <clears throat> I believe that all children, especially children with performance deficit, demand that in the educational environment. They require it the way they require pencils, pens, paper, uh, technology, computers, learning how to read, write, and do mathematics. They, these, this is demand, what you just said. Those children 
that also have the um, hyperkinetic and impulsive disinhibition that cannot sit still, that neurologically have this um, neurocircuitry that's disinhibited, and that is probably real, yeah. can use a little bit of medication. But as I say in the article, there are medications which are mild, not stimulants, and which are uh, FDA-approved to treat the uh, hyperarousability that goes along with the package called uh, ADHD. And I mention some of them. Hmm. One, of, one of the better ones is called guanfacine long-acting. The trade name is Intunive. I use it a, 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 all the time. Most of the kids that I see come in with... Uh, a monumental amount of stimulant medication. They all come in with horrendous side effects. And I try to persuade families uh, to uh, give me permission, informed consent, to discontinue, taper down the stimulant. And eventually that does happen after time. And then we start the milder medication. And then essentially... Virtually all the side effects after a month or two go away. Insomnia, irritability, mood swings, temper tantrum, uh, irritability, uh, lack of appetite, uh, suppression in growth in height. Hmm. The children start to grow. And another thing that's not spoken about is they start smiling. Boy, they're happy. Stimulant medications that stop children from smiling. They cause a constriction of affect. That's the technical phraseology. They don't smile. They have a sort of scowl on their face. I take that medicine away, and in a week, they start smiling and oh. laughing, and they, they sort of become in touch with their emotional life. And then you can become in touch with them emotionally and then start to work with them on their emotions, their feelings, and you elicit them as a team member in the treatment plans and the academic plans that you devise to help them do better than they've done in the past. Hmm. Boy, you know, Frank, it sounds like it's that, that there's a big, uh, even a bigger responsibility on relating to your kid as you go through this process, instead of just kind of sending him to the doctors to get medicated so he can perform, um, this is this is more of an approach where we've got to work together and and not throw the most drugs at it we can, but throw the throw the right diagnosis at the right thing and and then slowly work on it together. That's right. Drugs are not the answer. Drugs are absolutely not the answer. We as human beings. As persons are the answer, and the child is a person. The child is a human being, and I use the phrase life story. The child has a life story. Uh, in doing, in preparing for my book, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence, I had to devote a large section besides on emotion, on thinking, critical thinking, and executive functions and a chapter on the neuroscience of thinking and executive functions. And I came across uh, uh, National Institute of uh, Health and Mental Health. They um, have a toolbox, and they talk about cognition. And in cognition, 
they defined it as uh, the combination of both executive functions and episodic memory. And I thought to myself, what the heck do they mean by episodic memory? And by episodic memory, they mean one's sense of one's emotional autobiography, how you recall the sentient, meaningful events in your life and past, hmm. childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, middle age, older age, how you recall those events, how you remember them with emotion. And that's considered cognition. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, we got to take a break, Frank, but that's, that memories are tied to emotion, right? And our ability to recall is tied to that emotion. And uh, then instead, we'd rather just, I guess, medicate, medicate away some of this emotion um, and their memories and this interaction. We'll take a break, continuing this journey with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. Up next, we're going to, to try to understand what else we should be doing when it comes to our child, uh, their diagnosis, um, how we can be more involved as parents, what we should be saying to the doctors, how we could push back. To, to make sure the diagnosis is a proper one and we're handling and focusing on the right thing. All that straight ahead up here next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. We are on the phone with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He is a, a friend of the show and an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine Child Study Center. Today, he's walking us through a new perspective on ADHD, where he's, uh, he's, he's suggesting maybe we look at it more as a performance deficit disorder, and we, we probably need to understand it as a, as a complicated um, what do you call it? An ADHD is a bundle of deplorable problems masked in plain view. That was in his article on Psychology Today. I believe uh, the name of your blog on Psychology Today is um, – is it uh, Envy Theory? No, what is it? What is it? Envy uh, This. Envy This. Uh, it, it really I, – I love how you, how you take us on this journey, Frank, because really um, – we throw a label on it. We then have a child diagnosed with ADHD because they're not performing the way we want them to be performing. We throw a bunch of meds at them. But like you're saying, this is a very complicated disorder. Some of it's executive functioning, the ability to focus, and some of it's hyperkinetic, uh, kind of the hyperactivity side of the behavior. Um, and then a weird combination of both. How How do we... How do we get the message out to all of the those that are prescribing? I mean, I'm assuming a professor at Yale um, in in pediatric psychiatry is like yourself is is having a completely different insight and experience with this than maybe a pediatrician that might be diagnosing a kid with ADHD. Well, actually, the statistic is that. Um Seventy percent of all diagnoses of ADHD and all medications for stimulants are made by pediatricians in the pediatric office in a 15-minute visit. Hmm. Yeah, it's a one, two, three. 
a school says to mother, your child is not behaving, your child is not performing, probably child has attention problems, ADHD, bring him to the pediatrician. Mother brings child to the pediatrician, and, you know, all you need, you know, they have um, kind of Chinese menus of checkoffs. <laughs> yeah. Does your child do his homework? No. No. Nope. Does your child answer back? Yes. Does your child move around a lot? Yes. Does your child um, get up early in the morning when you ask him to? No. Oh, got ADHD. Yeah, All sounds like a normal symptoms. kid to me. Okay. Then they start with the stimulant medication. They start with five milligrams of Ritalin, and uh, that works for a week or two. And then with the stimulant medications, they're... Um, they have tolerance and withdrawal effects, which means uh, a little bit works for a week or two, and then you have to double it. And then that doesn't work anymore. Then you have to double it. Then you have to double it. Then you mm. have to double it until that medicine doesn't work anymore, Ritalin. And then you go to a heavier-duty form, something like uh, Vyvanse or Adderall or Concerta, and then you're really dealing with big guns with big side effects, and then you get insomnia, anorexia, ticks, twitches in the face. You get mood swings, irritability. The child is not smiling, laughing. And then it gets so complicated because the mother will say, I think my child's depressed now. Oh, my child just punched a hole in the wall. I think my child has uh, mm. anger management problems. Maybe my child is bipolar. And then it gets so convoluted if they bring that, their child to a clinic, that's what the intake worker sees and make, maybe would make a diagnosis of bipolar, which is you know, overdiagnosed. Uh, right. And then new medications are added on top of the old diagnoses and the old. So it gets so complicated. And then when nothing works anymore, after years, they get sent to a residential school like mine. And then I have to kind of um, sort out what's going on and then little by little by little take away the diagnoses, taper down all the medications, and start with a clean slate and work from scratch. Mm. What do you suggest we do as parents? We've only got two or three more minutes, Frank. What do we do if we're sensing there's more to it? I mean, we might see a little of the hyperactivity um, the hyperkinetic behavior, they're, they are maybe struggling a little bit focusing. What should we do? Okay. In general, structure, structure, structure. The child, every child, every adolescent needs maximal structure. So you have to structure the environment and the day with routines, with plans, with organization as much as possible. And the parent... Both parents have to do that in terms of all sectors of that child's life. You have to externalize everything that you want the child to do. Don't expect the child to remember or um, be motivated enough to do what you feel the child needs to do. You have to externalize cues, notes, um, hints. Everything has to be written down. Uh, put in their bedroom, put on boards, put on the refrigerator door. That's what you do in the home. Then if, if 
uh, parents feel that the performance in school is an issue, you really have to get involved with the school people. Start with the teacher, then go to the principal, then go to the social worker, and you can even call meetings. They call them uh, PPTs, where you talk with all the people involved with your child and have them tell you what they see. And if they feel they can't see anything, it's your right legally to have that child tested, psychological testing. And then you go from there. Always trying to avoid a, a carte blanche diagnosis of ADHD, because once that diagnosis is made, medication gets, uh, you know, reflux, uh, reflex uh, 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 action to, for medication. What you want is a, a reflex action for not merely special education, but a highly structured curriculum in the classroom. Hmm. That's and it, huh? that should help. That always helps. Yeah, no, that's that's powerful. Um, boy, Frank, I wish we had more time. We'll have you back to continue talking about this and your books, uh, your new book coming out on um, emotional intelligence as well and the power of emotions. Dr. Frank Ninavaji is his name. Uh, you can find out more on his blog, Envy This, on Psychology Today, plus uh, get all of his latest and, and greatest uh, work just by going to that website. He really is a great resource and um, changing lives and helping us as parents recognize that this is more about getting it right, right? And, and, and creating the conditions for the child to succeed, not just immediately medicating. What if we thought of it like there was an appeal? Instead, we've got to figure out how to create a relationship and an understanding and a pattern and be there and, and learn our way through this with our kids by exerting more time and energy instead of just medicating. I mean, eventually it might come down to medication, right? It might come back down to pharmaceuticals, but it doesn't have to in the first go around or the second or the third. It might be the fourth thing we'd try. Um, and anyway, interesting stuff. We'll continue the discussion. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when we talk about ADHD and then the drugs that they give you for ADHD tend to be uh, speed, amphetamine, for example, and yet so many people are out there on drugs like methamphetamine. Do you think they're just trying to medicate their own ADHD? I, I actually believe so. Listen to this crazy story. Uh, police said a man was arrested trying to buy drugs at a police station. Talk about um, attention deficit problem. Well, they know uh, they have them there at the police station. Well, that's where they took them. Yeah. They took them away from me last time, so maybe they're still – maybe you still have them. Police say two men have been arrested after they tried to buy drugs from an officer at a Connecticut police station. Hartford police say an officer had finished his shift, was walking to his vehicle Sunday when two men approached and asked if he would sell him some drugs. Hey, dude, you, you want to sell us some drugs? <laughs> What? The two men said they needed to find an ATM to get cash, so the officer directed them to a machine inside the lobby of the police department. Police said that while the men went inside to get $60 for drugs, the officer called for help and the men were arrested. Hartford police did not release their names. The $60 was taken as evidence. Evidence, huh? Yeah, dude, we got, I got drugs. 
I got drugs. You, you need an ATM? Just go right in there. Ask Officer Lewis where the ATM is. I'll be then, surprised if that money ends up in the evidence room. Because no, there's will. a Chipotle right next door to that police station. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but Chipotle's got other problems lately. You got to be careful. That's true. I mean, I'm not disparaging them, but they've got some evidence in the police station too. <laughs> yes, they do. Anyway, uh, you know, don't go to a police station to get your drugs, folks. When you can go to your psychiatrist, for heaven's sakes. Crazy stuff. We're dealing with a crazy world, and uh, we're helping you try to get through it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, hour number three of the program. If you missed any of the earlier hours, go to iTunes, go to TuneIn. Stitcher.com. Go look us up at BYUradio.org. MattTownsend.com. We're everywhere. Giving you the uh, the latest and the greatest. That's where you can get all the podcasts on the show. So much to cover today as well. Uh, our very own health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, will be joining us to um, walk us through a study. Apparently, teens are as sedentary as 60-year-olds. I believe it. Like they, I totally believe it. They have learned to veg on a retired level. It's those darn cell phones. I know, those wascally cell phones. The funny thing is um, a 60-year-old should be a little more sedentary. You've lived a life of adventure and excitement. Life has been good to you. Maybe you can slow down a little bit. But, but even, even the 60-year-olds in my neighborhood are out in their yard working all Those the time. Those people drive me crazy. <laughs> Why do they do that? <laughs> because they got nothing but time. So when I was sick this weekend, I happened to have a good neighbor friend who ended up mowing my weed garden. Really? He ended up weed-eating my weed garden that I have been growing my weed garden for the entire summer. Was he trying to send you a message like, maybe uh, I don't was, want this next door to me? He would never say that, but he cared so much about me that he just weed-eated it down. And now it's to a point where, honestly, I could go till it a little bit, take out all the weeds, and then I'd have a pristine, perfect little garden. But I'm not going to do that. Because then what would I do with a pristine, perfect little garden? Well, you've got too much Netflix to get caught up on. I mean, a guy cannot live by gardening alone. That's in the Bible. Yeah, it is. And by the way, it's also in the Bible, apparently, that uh, the weeds were were introduced after the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Because God wanted us to earn it by the sweat of our brow. But, yeah, But I had a little trick because I didn't earn my garden weeds. I had my neighbor. He took care of them for me. Hmm. See how that works? Yeah. A little biblical moment. I think it's also in the Bible that thou shalt not allow thy neighbor to till the weeds. Yeah. 
I think that's probably the, yeah. And uh, he was probably coveting. No, I was. No, I think what it is, he's getting a pool put in his yard, and so he can't do much work on his yard because it's just torn up with all the people fixing doing his pool. So he came over, had a little free energy, and he's like, "I'm going to take on Brother Matt's weed garden." Hmm. What a neat guy. Lane Stokes is his name. He really is a saint, and I love him to death. And I just, you know, was down in bed. Now And then everybody must think I'm just the biggest slacker in the world because how come my wife's out there? Yeah. Everyone's out there but Matt. And I know yeah. he's home because his car's there, but I was, I was dying watching Netflix in bed. I don't think that'll change their opinion. I think they'll still think you're a slacker. Yeah. So – I did have a question for you, man. Yeah, okay. Kind yeah. of based off of this. Yeah. Um, how do I get my wife to mow the lawn? You know what you do. It's this so is simple. dangerous, by the it's way. so simple. See, my neighbor, uh, several of my neighbors, their wives will just go out and mow the lawn. Well, what you do is if you don't mow the lawn, yeah. and that's important to your wife, she'll eventually mow it. Oh. So Mine wait, mows wait it. her out. You could wait her out. Okay. Mine mows it, and we have a huge lawn. But my wife loves doing it, so you can't tell her not to. But I want—I don't want her to mow it. I want her to let my children mow it because they need to learn. But she'd rather just go do it than, rather than fighting the kids. She likes doing it. Do you want to know why my wife does it? I mean, other than the fact that she's a saint. Well, and she doesn't want you to lose a finger. True. Or a toe. <laughs> I'm not at home in the wee hours of the morning when it's cool enough to actually go outside and mow the lawn. Yeah. So by the time I get home, it's already piping hot. Right. So she will just mow it for me. Plus, she doesn't want you to smell like a wet dog the rest of the night. Yeah. Right. Sweating or, you know, so she's like, it's just easier. Sure, I just gave birth to a baby in the lobby of a, of a hospital, but I'll do it. And she mows it while holding the baby. That is amazing. Well, that would be irresponsible. She doesn't really do that. She doesn't do that. But, um, boy. You get one of those backpacks. <laughs> a papoose. Just toss it in there, and that's I, I vacuum the the house with my kid. Yeah. You know what's I weird? I turn the kid away, though. Having the kid stare at you is just kind of weird. I know, but see, that's a very male thing. Yeah. See, you'll notice when a baby, a woman picks up a baby, they tend to turn the baby to their face, mm. and face to face, eye to eye, they talk to the baby. I've got my eyes on you, yeah, like, so hey, to speak. Because we're bonding, we're connecting. But when men tend to pick up a baby, they tend to turn them away from their face, right? And then they use them like little puppets. Mm. Yeah, and they just play with their legs. I'm a, I'm a kicking baby. You ever put a baby on a Roomba? Not this week. Minutes of fun. Minutes. Minutes of fun and yeah. followed by hours of lecturing from your wife saying, keep the baby off the Roomba. And then some couples therapy, which yeah. is how you get many of your clients, as I understand. By the way, great business for me. Baby, the Roomba, Roomba the baby. You couldn't recommend it higher. Uh-uh. Come see It's me. great. Give me a call. one eight five five chat uh, now, let's get to the headlines. We've got a lot to talk about. We'll talk about teenagers are as sedentary as 60-year-olds, which is kind of scary. And so Dr. Ron Hager will talk to us about how we can create a life, a more active life. Also, um, we've got uh, some teenagers, by the way, in uh, Lakeland, apparently Florida, that are throwing eggs at bicyclists ah. and getting arrested for it. Mm. It's a what? Time. I know. You can't throw an egg at people anymore? Not unless you're a chicken. Uh, Not unless mm. you're a chicken. Right. They so, have uh, talons. 
Do they? Yeah. Those are not talons. Ask talons eagle about aren't really talon. conducive to uh, throwing little, eggs at people. Little hook feet. Okay. Uh, we'll get to that fun. Plus, of course, BYU Sports Nation. We'll visit them and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. We'll do a hero story as well. All of that to get through, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what should we be paying attention to? The White House will place new sanctions on Venezuelan President Nicolas Mardro. The U.S. Treasury Department announced on Monday. The Treasury froze Mardro's U.S.-based assets and forbade all U.S. persons from dealing with the Venezuelan president. The sanctions come in response to Mardro's decision to hold Sunday elections on a new constitutional assembly which would redraw the Venezuelan government and likely cement the unpopular leader's rule. Venezuelan officials claim more than 8 million people voted for the new constitutional assembly, but analysts dispute the number, saying that fewer than 4 million people actually voted. In a Monday statement, Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen called Marauder a dictator who disregards the will of the Venezuelan people. Really? Joe Cannon wants to talk with you about this next week. Name calling, name calling. By the way, I think it's Maduro, which no, means wood. His name is Mr. Wood. Last night, they arrested two opposition leaders. Like Ooh, people that ran yeah, against them. That's kind of scary. Yeah, so, so once you're running the opposition leaders or doing something to them, that's scary. You're arresting them in the middle of the night. So HBO CEO Richard Pelper revealed Monday that the cable network, which is home to hit shows such as Game of Thrones and Westworld, was hacked. In an email addressed to the employees that was obtained by ABC News, Pelper described the hack as a cyber incident directed at the company, which has resulted in some stolen proprietary information, including some of our programming. Yeah, now they're going to have leaks. Entertainment Weekly reports that the hackers obtained 1.5 terabytes of data, including a script for Game of Thrones. The hackers, according to EW, also got their hands on an upcoming episode of Ballas. That's your favorite show on HBO. Ballas! With The Rock. Yeah, Yeah, I love uh, Ballas. And some other shows which have been placed online. A representative for HBO wouldn't confirm what programming was affected by the hack. Netflix, Sony, and ABC have also been targeted by cyber attacks in what appears to be a growing trend. It's interesting. So these companies, they still can't tie down their system. No. It doesn't make sense. Well, some of it has to do with the fact that you have so many people that have access. All you have to do is get one of them to do something improper when it comes to right. handling so an email or a flash like drive. It just seems like there would be maybe there's a system there where you could fix that. Netflix has yeah. Netflix has the perfect model for this type of hostage hostage situation because their episodes are released all at once anyway. So their response is, all right, go ahead. It'll yeah. be out. They'll yeah. all be out in a couple of weeks anyway. Whereas, <laughs> whereas HBO wants people watching every week. Yeah. So if you release See? an episode, it could hurt. So. Time to change the model. See what happens. The water near the base of Niagara Falls turned an alarming shade of black before tourists' eyes following a foul-smelling discharge from a wastewater treatment plant. Oh. Sounds like the fountain in my backyard. Yuck. Yes. The water board for the, not water boarding, but the water board for the city of Niagara Falls, New York, says Saturday's discharge was part of a routine maintenance in one of, in one of its basins. Officials said the blackish water contained accumulated solids and carbon residue, mm. but no organic oils or solvents. It's one of my favorite bands, by Less the way. Filling. Saturday's Discharge. It says the discharge, uh, they dis- describe the odor as normal sewer water discharge smell. Uh, the board says the discharge normal. The discharge was within the, within the permitted limits, which makes you really feel safe when they, like, like we, were, we were looking at lead yeah. in water, and they said, oh, it's safe. It's within the government standards. There's still lead in there, you're saying. 
Well, Even though it's within the standards, there's still lead. In this case, they're saying the discharge was within the permitted limits. I'm like, mm. That's got to be horrible for tourism. Yeah. It was yeah. Good. Sorry, we're going to be letting out the discharge from the state of New York. And it, they said the the part that was most disturbing to the uh. tourists is it was right next to the two tour boats. That go under the yeah, falls. Yeah. And so you go out and get in the boat and look over and everything's Mommy, mucky. do you remember when they flushed the toilet at <laughs> at the Great Falls? Do you remember that, Mommy? Do you remember so, no. all the therapy we had after that? <laughs> so That's that disgusting. That happened yesterday. Well and and again, the smell gives it away. Right. But they said it's a normal smell. It's a normal smell for but a like, sewage treatment plant. You know, Jeff hurt his leg. Uh-huh. And his his leg has been not healing well. It's been kind of warping into weird, you know, shapes and oh wow. Well, and yeah, there so is serious. a noticeable smell hmm. in the studio now, and many say it's Jeff's leg. Le- leg but they don't call it discharge; it's hmm. like sloughage. It's but, the essential oils, is what it is that my that, wife put on. For that situation, it is normal. Nothing to be alarmed about. Yeah, it's normal sloughage. Yeah. I wouldn't call it normal, but you know. And Whatever finally, it is, it's on the floor now. And finally, in honor of our next guest, Ron Hager. Yeah, Dr. Ron. The Center for Science and the Public Interest is out with its annual list of chain restaurant meals mm. that are so packed with calories, they're yeah. more like a full day's worth of calories. Well, I hope he's listening because he loves high-caloric lunch. He's a great. So the highest number of calories, yeah. the honor this year, goes to Texas Roadhouse's 16-ounce prime rib with loaded sweet potato and Caesar salad. How many calories? 2,820 calories in that one meal. That may have been the meal I had when I had my first gallbladder attack. 72 grams of fat and 51 grams of sugar. 72 grams of fat. Yeah. 52 grams of sugar. Wait, but it comes mm. with sweet potatoes? You get a sweet potato. Oh, oh, yeah. And if it's your birthday, they'll put you on a saddle and sing happy birthday. Hee-haw for you. Uh, for a breakfast type uh, yeah. item? Death. I hops cheeseburger omelet. With a side of buttermilk pancakes. Oh, that makes sense. 1,990 calories. A cheeseburger omelet. Yeah. And then it, then you go to Roadhouse for dinner. You're loaded for the day. But what should we well, have for, the week, really. for lunch? Mm, you might want to recover. Yeah. Maybe just don't have lunch. Maybe just go straight to the emergency room <laughs> to be defibrillated. Yeah, the, the mo- lunch break is when they're not so busy. So Yeah, I like to go when there's yeah. a less. The most calorie-packed dessert. What? It's at the Uno Pizzeria and Grill. Apparently, that's a, a yeah. thing somewhere. Apparently named the Ridiculously Awesome Insanely Large Chocolate Cake. It's mm. a good name, right? Sounds really good. 1,740 calories. Holy cow. But so and, you could have prime rib meal for 2,100 yeah? calories, uh-huh. or you could just have the insanely awesome the cake. dessert. And it comes with 168 grams of sugar. See, now, to me, this is the ultimate best bang for your buck. This is like the best return on your investment. Like bang, when you say bang, you mean like bang, like they just shut the lid on your casket? It's open for interpretation. <laughs> for your buck, you can get your casket slammed shut tighter on that meal than any other bang. Most calories per dollar. Yeah, she bangs. It's not bad. And the biggest number of calories in a burger. Okay. Buffalo Wild Wings. Ooh. Cheese curd bacon burger. Oh no! Oh, that sounds so bad. <laughs> so you have a cheese, a cheeseburger topped with deep fried cheese curds, cheese curds, and bacon. 
Did you notice that Dr. Ron Hager is grabbing his chest as he we is. speak? The burger has <laughs> 1,950 calories. What? And you know you're getting that with fries. I'm, I think I'm supposed to have 2,100, no, 1,800 calories a day. Yeah. You eat one of these, you're done for the day. In many ways, in a variety of ways, you are probably done. Just you know, the cheese curds would push me over my cheese limit. The in-studio defibrillator that we have in here is actually specifically for Dr. Ron Hager. I know. Sadly, he's the only one in the room that wouldn't need it. Oh, well. So there you go. There's the food. Okay. If, if you want really to have a calorie overload, okay. go there first. Good job. Well done. Holy cow. All right. We are going to come back and be talking with Dr. Ron himself, see if he can recover from those uh, really nice high-caloric op- options. Um, when we come back, we're also going to be talking about teenagers and how sedentary they are. By the way, they're living the life of a 60-year-old. Unbelievable. What's happening to us, America? That's all straight ahead. You're listening to us right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Yes, brothers and sisters, our health evangelist is here, Dr. Ron Hager. Uh, We're honored to have him back. Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences right here in Brigham Young University. I was going to say right here in River City. But uh, we're honored to have you, Ron. Thanks for being with us. It's good to be here again. Now, is it true that that I hear that uh, according to this latest study, and, you know, every study needs to be dissected, um, that teens are as sedentary as 60-year-olds? Well, that's kind of the glass is half empty. That's the negative view of this. Right. So you could say that— But they weigh more than seven 70-year-olds. Sure. But you could say teens are as active as 60-year-olds. There and you instead go. of as inactive as, inactive. as 60. Interesting. Yeah, you could. <laughs> See, then everything's okay. Yeah, that, that actually, uh, yeah. Boy, these journalists are so cynical. Yeah, aren't they? They could spin it so positively. So what's going on? I mean, it makes sense. They, their whole life is on their phone now. Okay, well, I, I like to, I, I honestly, I do like to try and be a positive person. And, you know, if you look at, now, and, and this is a brand new study, it's, it's like an August 2017, so, wow. so it's kind of like a little bit even ahead of print. And this is a, a group of researchers that looked at what's called NHANES data. NHANES is, a, is kind of an ongoing national survey in the United States. Uh, I think it stands for National Health Examination and Nutrition Survey. So they survey you know, a, a lot of the population, uh, uh, and obviously across various ages, because in this study they look... Uh, you know their their data give indications of activity levels from six year olds up to you know eighty four year olds wow yeah and uh and and it's actually objectively measured activity and so that's kind of cool this is not self report because a lot of times you know there are inherent problems with self report you ask a person how active they are and they tell you how active they wish they were yeah I mean not I really how act- would like to yeah. be this active yeah. Yeah. yeah or you ask them about their diet you know what is it that you eat and they tell you what they wish they were eating so wishful thinking can get in the way of self report but this is objectively measured they have little devices electronic devices called accelerometers now. Most people are aware of these things because they actually exist now in in your smartphones. Yeah, so count your steps and your everything yeah. you're doing. Yeah, and so the, so they they're, they're looking at people who actually wore these activity monitors, you know, for like seven days in a row to give some idea of uh, what daily activity is like. Um, 
And and so okay, a couple of positive things. Uh, one is is that yes, activity levels go down. You know, as you get get older, there are some little bumps and plateaus along the way. But uh, you know, I guess kind of a line of best fit. You know, you're going downhill. Yeah. Um, but but the good news is that, and, and this has always been the case, and I think you would agree that children are the most active segment of the population. Oh boy, yeah. Now whether they're active enough or as active as you know experts or uh, you know governing bodies. Uh, think they should be. That's a different question, but they are still the most active segment of the population. So children are still active. They are still playing and doing those things. But are are, are you know are they as active as they used to be, or uh, are they are are average activity levels within an age category going down over time? Uh, you know, there's other data uh, you know that we could talk about related to those things. But this data does show that. That you know, the average 19-year-old uh, for both males and females, uh, you know, total activity counts, uh, you know, uh, across a, a a day, are about the same as somebody who's roughly 60 to 65 years old. Hmm. Um, and so th- there, there's a very sharp decrease in activity from early childhood, like around five or six years old, until. Um, you know, late adolescence, early adulthood, around 19, 20 years old. Wow. It it just drops off. You know, it's kind of a, a positively accelerating curve. But and, we, I guess the problem, we don't know what this means, like long term, do we? Well, kind of we do because um, – Have know, we ever had a sedentary age – I mean a group that started this young being that sedentary? Well, no, that's a great question. Uh, as far as the long-term effects, you know, we can look at some of the epidemiological research that's right. been done, you know, that has been conducted over multiple decades. And and we find that, yeah, that less active people uh, at any age um, have higher risk of uh, chronic diseases and, and other health problems, mm. including weight gain and and so forth. But, you know, one of the one of the troubling things about a study like this is everybody then, their their mind almost always instantly turns to, uh, you know, what are we going to do? And it's all about, you know, the dirty word exercise. Right. And, uh, you know, I, and I call it a dirty word because I remember hearing somebody say once, whenever I hear the dirty word exercise, I lie down until the feeling passes. <laughs> um, I, I can't remember who that was attributed to, but but a lot of people you know, they they just think you know like some kind of compulsion. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we got to force. You know, these people, these kids, these young adults, these uh, these elderly people. You know, we got to force them to be active. And that, I mean, look where uh, we've kind of had that sort of mentality for for decades. In fact, it's called the exercise prescription model. Hmm. Uh, you know, and you're familiar with it. It's the you know how you know how how active should I be? Well, you should exercise with your heart rate in this range yeah. for a minimum of 20 minutes a day. You know, at least four times a week. You know, it's like a prescription. And what has that gotten us? Well, this latest data kind of shows where it's gotten us. Uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not part of our life, right? It's kind of some additive thing we're supposed to add to life, right? And and of course. You know, the way we live our lives has been displaced or, you know, or the things we do or ha- did do obviously have been displaced, hmm. uh, you know, much of which is, uh, you know, just the busyness of our lives, our work, our school. Uh, but there are other things. You mentioned cell phones. 
Uh, I heard an interesting story on the on a news broadcast on the radio the other day that there's there's an increasing problem with um, pe- with kids who are going off to summer camp uh, breaking the rules by trying to smuggle cell phones into camp. But what they found, Matt, is that it's actually and this this goes to a point that we'll talk about later maybe, but uh, it, it's not as much the kids as it is the parents. Oh, the parents want to stay in touch. Yeah. I want to know want to what's they, happening at it's, camp. It's kind of the helicopter sort of parent. Holy cow. And so they, they told the story of even, you know, uh, of the, the an example of what has been happening, and that is that parents are actually planting two phones uh, in their kids' stuff, one that's easy to find yeah. and one that's really hard to find so that when they go through the stuff, you know, the, the camp counselors or whatever to, Here's ins- a burner to ensure phone. the rules. You know, they're like, ah, oh we, my we, we got your phone and you can have it when you get back. Okay, thanks. And off they go when the cell, the other phone, you know, is, is, is the, you know, not the decoy. Yeah. And these are parents. That is so strange. Right. So, so obviously there are things that have, you know, displaced certain behaviors. We have changed over time. Um, but, but, but like I said, it's, you know, maybe activity levels do go down across the lifespan, um, and maybe to some extent, you know, that's to be expected. But a person can actually be what I would say healthy and active across their lifespan. Absolutely, you know that they can do the things they need. Now, now a ninety-year-old is probably never going to be as active as a six-year-old. Right. You know, of course but we've, not. But you've showed us examples of 90-year-olds running half marathons or – Yeah, or winning uh, you know, senior games events. Right. And, they can be active for their age. Sure. And, and it's not so much about exercise as it is about a lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, something they've integrated into their life as part of who they are. It's almost like a part of their personality. I think about uh, you know, some research that's been done on the oldest people in the world. We've talked about this on the show before. Uh, the, the blue zones. The blue zones with Dan Butner and his group that have studied these people. And one of the characteristics that they noted that are common among all these blue zones around the world where people live the longest is that there's, there is no such thing as exercise. Right. The people do not exercise, yet they are very active. Yeah. They have to walk. They're, they're, it's not, they don't consider walking to work exercise. It's yeah. Yeah, now well, it's just how they get to work. Now, it's now, transportation. Let me, let me just make another point because you know some recent research has looked at uh, the comparison between people who are highly active and people who sit a lot, and people who who more than double the World Health Organization recommendation for activity. So they're they're they, they would be considered you know by some standards highly active if they are also the ones who are sitting the most. So these are people who are getting. You know, like more than 300 minutes a week of, of activity or exercise. Like physical exercise. But, if they're, they also, sit all but if they're also sitting for more than 11 hours a day, they're, they're 50% more likely to, to die. Unbelievable. So, so, it's, so that's why I say you have to be careful because you can say, look, I, I exercise for two hours a day. And then all of a sudden you think, well, then, then I'm all good, right? And I sit for 14. Right. See, that doesn't work. Now, interesting. So that's why I say it's about a pattern that a person has in their life. It's about it's about looking for opportunities to move and to be active instead of, which I think is the most common mentality, looking for opportunities uh, to be sedentary. Now, you know, nobody likes that word either, Um so, but 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 think about it. I mean, the the mindset of people is 
you know, instead of sedentary, maybe they say efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever I can get done for the least amount of effort, that makes me more successful. But that's not that that no. that's the wrong mentality. The mentality is, you know, look, hey, here's an opportunity to take the stairs instead of the elevator. I'll do it. Here's an opportunity to walk further rather than not walk further. I'm going to take it. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's good stuff. Let's. Um, We're speaking again with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. And up next, we're going to continue this discussion, but also try to figure out what we can do to to get physical activity more in our lives, to create a regimen, to get the time to do it, to get rid of all the other excuses we use that uh, that keeps us uh, in such a sedentary way of being. All that straight ahead uh, with the good Dr. Ron. Welcome back. Yes, that is the uh, wonderful music that says, hey, it's time to get healthy. It's time to pick up your spirits. Who better to help us than the health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences right here at Brigham Young University. And uh, Ron, thanks again for being with us. My pleasure. And thanks uh, for teaching us about how to, to create a little bit more activity in our lives. That I mean, I assume... If when we read the study about teens being sedentary as uh, or as active as sixty five year olds, right there you go. That's a very positive way to look at it. Sure, there's a million excuses we might make as to why all of us aren't more active. Sure, I, I mean the, the the excuses are um, basically unlimited. Yeah, um, I, I've even met people who say, you know, I'll I'll make it up later. Oh you know, yeah, you know, you know because they when I they, am sixty five, right? Because they've devoted you know, all of their time to, you know, their career or, you know, or, or making money or, or, you know, the next big deal or, or, you know, even excuses like, well, I've got kids or family or, you know, or, or church or whatever, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they're always looking into the future saying, well, yeah, but, you know, when I retire or whenever this happens. And there's a couple other pieces of kind of interesting information that came from this study. Um, obviously, they show some, some curves or some, uh, you know, kind of some plots of lines that, uh, you know, that sedentary, you know, being sedentary increases with age, you know, th- this is kind of something that, you know, researchers and statisticians like to do, you know, they, yeah. in order to make it look like there's more data, they just show the opposite, you know, well, we showed that activity levels went down and they, they illustrate that, and, you know, and then they show, you know, sedentary, sedentary levels went up. up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. anyway, they, they did show that, but, but it's kind of interesting is that, you know, right after, uh, you know, uh, adolescence, you know, about 18, 19 years old, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the steadily increasing level of becoming sedentary actually drops a little. And, and there's also an interesting bump, you know, so activity levels are going down until about 18 or 19 years old. And mm. then they come up just a little bit. I've heard this, uh, some people call this the post high school bump. Now, what is that attributed to? And, and so, so let me ask you, what do you think that's attributed to? So, so we're looking at people who are just about the age of graduating from high school. Across their lifespan thus far, their activity levels have been going down. They've probably been in school. They've been stuck behind desks. Yeah. So, so post-high school, there's this little bit of a oh, res- summer resurgent. Well, like they're getting out to life. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. But it actually goes up, you know, until maybe – you know, 21, 22, 23 years old, then it starts to level off oh, interesting. And, until, 
you know, it kind of starts to decrease, you know, al- almost a plateau. It's it's just barely going down until you start to get into uh, older adulthood, like 50 to 60 years old. Uh, but that, that's that increase for about three or four years, there are various explanations for it. Uh, you know, one is that, uh, you know, of those, you know, post-high school uh, people that, that go to college, uh, college usually... Uh, for most people, implies uh, or at least uh, you know is is tied to more walking, mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe more opportunity for sports participation through intramural programs. A lot of universities, right. colleges have those kinds of programs, so those kinds of things can kind of help explain the slight increase in activity that's seen for a period of time after high school. But then those that don't go to college, yeah, what kind of jobs do they typically get? Yeah, you, all of a sudden, yeah, you, retail, you're going to be. Yeah, just stuck in a building. Well, or or jobs that require more physical labor. If you've just got a high school diploma, oh, yeah. and you're saying, "Well, I'm not really going to go to college. I'm just going to go to work," you know, you're not going to get you know the cushy True. job you know in the corner office where you sit for 14 right. hours a day. You're going to get you know a construction job. You're going to get uh, you know a food service job. You're going to get something that requires a little more physical labor. That's true. Uh, so huh? those are some of the explanations for why activity goes up. But 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 yes, it is a concern and it is somewhat alarming uh you know that across our lifespan activity level goes down. Do you, do you sense that what like I don't know that any of us have as much data as we need. Is there something we could be doing to collecting better data about our own activity levels? Now, for most people, self-awareness is a major motivator. Yeah. You know, when people kind of have that, you know, the light bulb goes on, they're like, "Whoa, I had no idea." Everybody's had those experiences in their life for various things, and you know, you realize that that can be, you know, very motivating. Um, you know, maybe unless it's tied to maybe some kind of addiction, then it may be a lot more difficult to manage, but um, I, I always recommend to people that they take some kind of an accounting. I, you know, we talked about how much time people spend sitting. I recommend to people that they keep a week-long sitting journal. Oh, yeah. Just, just document, you know, when you sit down, look at the time, document it. When you get up, look at the time, document it. And then over the course of seven days, add up your total sitting time, divide by seven, and see how much time you spend on average per day sitting. By the way, you're saying that as Jeff and I are both sitting. Yeah, and I'm standing. And you're standing. Yeah, absolutely. You never take a chair here. What? And we're sick of it. <laughs> okay. Well, Not to be rude. Well, one of these times I'll have to no, sit down. No, just it's very um, admirable. So so, so one of the things I recommend is that people, um, you know, just, just kind of do a little uh, a self-awareness activity where they document, you know, how much time they spend sleeping, how much time they spend working, how much time, you know, they spend you know, bathing or getting dressed or taking care of, you know, the hygiene issues of their, you know, related to their bodies, you know, eating, commuting or traveling. And and these are not all things that you want to say necessarily displace with activity. You don't want to say, well, I'm sleeping eight hours a day. Well, I want to cut that down to four so right I can now. exercise more. So so there are certain things you have to do that by their very nature are sedentary. Right. And that's okay. That's okay. But, but just, uh, you know, track that, uh, kind of keep a little journal and then uh and then there are also activities that maybe you want to do, not that you have to do, but that you want to do every day. Uh maybe maybe you you know want to watch a little TV. Uh maybe you know you're into Netflix and you're watching some episodes. Maybe you know you do, you don't realize that you're doing that for 5 hours yeah. a day. You know, so just document it or you know there's nothing wrong with visiting with friends or family. Uh now, you know, of course that could be an active visitation. You could right. be walking or whatever. Well, you don't or, have to sit down or, to watch Netflix. You could. I, I make a rule that if I do the dishes 
I can watch Netflix. So I'm watching Netflix and doing the dishes. So like on an iPad or something. And nobody's like that, bothering yeah. me because I'm doing dishes and they, nobody wants to get sucked into that with right. me. Right. Uh, people spend a lot of time on the computer, surfing the web, those kinds of things. So just, just take an accounting of all of that. And, of course, there's 24 hours in a day. You know, some people's wish is that, oh, I wish there was 28 hours in a day. Then I'd have more time to be active. But that obviously no, is – you do the same. It, you just not, add to your – Yeah, you'd probably add to it. So you, you've got to take a look at, at what you're doing. Document it. Categorize it. Say what is absolutely necessary. And then whatever's left over, start working with that. Um, one of my one of my all time favorite professors at BYU, uh, Dr. Phil Olson, uh, he, he's he's retired a few years ago, but I still see him on campus working out all the time. He's in his eighties, and uh, and I'll never forget. So I had a class from him years ago, and I'll never forget something he said when whenever he tells a person they need to exercise, he said the most common excuse, and this is and th- this is valid. This has been studied. The most common excuse people give. When they when you say why don't you exercise more or why aren't you more physically active is what I time. don't I don't I have, have enough time. time yep I'm out of time and he said well he said for people who say they don't have time to exercise he says I ask him three questions what's your favorite flower what's your favorite hymn and who would you like to sing it at your funeral so those <laughs> that's are the, great. so those are the three questions they no, get that's asked. real totally real well we appreciate it I mean it's it's not easy Ron but I know there I mean we can do anything and I. Um, from just getting parking farther away in the parking lot to – I mean you can improve your uh, your output of energy, your exercise. Give us maybe two or three things we can do immediately okay. that would have a here, big here, impact. Here, here's one example. Uh, right now – and, and this, is, this is a result of you know, just the way people try and run their businesses. Okay? Look at car washes nowadays. You know – a person would rarely take their car through a car wash. Now they have subscriptions to car washes yeah. for a very low price, relatively speaking. You can wash your car anytime. Okay? Yeah. And, and I'll never forget when I was younger, when I was a boy, my, one of my Saturday chores that was assigned to me wash the car. was to wash the cars. You hardly ever see anybody. I mean, there was a time. In their driveway. Do you remember that? I know. Yeah, there was a time when you drive around a neighborhood on a Saturday and at various times of the day, it didn't matter, you would almost always see a few people yeah. with a bucket and a brush and a rag washing their cars. Okay, So all I'm saying is look for opportunities. Don't be, uh, don't, don't be undermined just because of the advances in technology or the latest deal or the most appealing thing. You know, you have to put up a red flag and you have to say, whoa, is this what's best for me? You you might say, well, it's more efficient, well, it's a better car wash or, or whatever it is, but you're being robbed. Yeah, right. You are being robbed. Now, most people don't like to be robbed. So no. if you can tell yourself you're being robbed of opportunities to be active. So just look for those opportunities to be more active. You mentioned parking further away rather than closer. What's wrong with five minutes extra walking? Right. You say, I don't have time. Right. Come on. Walk your dog, for heaven's sakes. That thing is gaining yeah. a ton of weight. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of things you can do. In it. And, and, and if you're with friends or family, that can be very motivating, too. No, I think that's right. And do it together. Do it as a family. That's what I mean. Yeah. Dr. Ron. Be an example. You're the best. Dr. Ron Hager's his name. Thanks. And uh, health uh, and death prevention is his game. He's the man, the myth, the legend. We, uh, we are going to come back and be talking to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. It's all straight ahead, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends. That's the music that says it's time to go visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show in just about 10 minutes or so. Hello, gentlemen. Are you there? I have a dream. Really? Well, I had a dream. What was it? And I hope Jeff is paying attention. Is Is Jeff Jeff there? Jeff's here. Jeff's totally here. Okay. Okay. I had a dream, no kidding, that the Los Angeles Dodgers won the World Series. Really? I was celebrating with Dave Roberts. Holy cow. That's the manager. That's some dream. It was very detailed. In fact, I woke up and I was like, wow, the Dodgers won the World Series. The Doyas. And then I'm like, wait, it's August 1st. (laughs) (laughs) Hold it. Beware the August 1st. Wasn't there a champagne order? (laughs) Was there a was there a supermodel involved in any way? Uh, no, no. Not in this particular dream. No supermodels. Just, uh, just models. Just celebration. Just with models. Roberts Not and, super. And the, they weren't and the super. LA Dodgers. Holy cow! If you I can't didn't think of an adjective. Just add super. Yeah. To it. I am not kidding. I woke up and after I realized for a second that it wasn't real, I thought, "Oh, I need to tell Jeff about this." Yeah, that's a good dream. <laughs> On the radio. Jeff, we're doing it now. He's no man. Jeff He's has that super. dream every day. The Dodgers won the In the middle series. of our show, he, he always wakes up, wipes his chin, and then has had that dream. Hey, they just got a lot better, too. Might as well make the best team in baseball oh, yeah. a little bit better. Yeah. Who did yeah. they pick up? You Darvish, a, an outstanding pitcher, although he struggled lately, but an outstanding pitcher from the Texas Rangers. Is he a Maybe whirling the Darvish? Japanese pitcher ever. Okay, he's not a whirling Darvish, is no, he? No, although that is perfect. <laughs> Does he? You think so. He's a hurling Darvish. Mm-hmm. That boy can Nailed hurl. So, um, I so are the Dodgers the team to beat now? They have been, and they are even more. Because what is the postseason about? It's about pitching. And when you have Clayton Kershaw, you Darvish, Rich Hill, is it Alex Wood, who's still undefeated, I think? Yes. Maybe? Jeff they, gives thumbs up. They are up. so good. They are so good. What about the – I thought I was hearing some scuttle about the New York Yankees picking up someone. They picked up Sonny Gray from the A's, which is great for the AO West for me. Yes. Uh, Sonny Gray is uh, Oakland A's pitcher. was fantastic. He's going to be with the Yankees now who are making a playoff push as well. The trade deadline was yesterday, so people were wheeling and dealing, whirlishing and hurling <laughs> their way into good – Hurlishing. Hurlishing their way Whirlishing into, and hurlishing. into the best trades possible. <laughs> this is now we're still talking about lacrosse, right? Yeah. Okay. Major League Lacrosse. ML. Major League Lacrosse. I mean, I forgot it was getting this big. I really did. I couldn't. Oh, believe it's gonna it. be huge, said Sox Huge fans in ninety four. Yeah. This is you guys, baseball and by the way, I don't know if you guys have noticed, uh Jeff hurt his leg in the last game. What happened? He's he slid. And his, oh, I saw it. You, did you see his slide? I saw it. You remember he, On he dry grass. Yeah. I've done that a couple of times. And he stopped about four oh. feet short of the bag too, which was embarrassing. Well, let's, let's not bring that up. Even Wrong. He but he's his leg is still it's still oozing. No, seriously, it, it's really painful. Scraping the skin off, sliding on dry grass. You can't sleep. Like oh. you wake up in the middle of the night and it just is throbbing and stinging. Am I right, Jeff? Oh yeah. He's, I'm so sorry. In fact, you just woke him up right there. He was sleeping? Yeah, the only time he sleeps is during the show. At least Wrong. The <laughs> At least the audience isn't. Wrong. Yeah, he's, he's hating it. So, Ugh. you know, keep him in your prayers. Are you sick? I've had a cold. Yeah, yesterday I'm sorry. I wasn't it's here. It's not be- cold at all outside. 
No, I know. You know, it was a sinus thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Something man. crawled into my sinuses. Hey, don't interact. Do with not us. do not go there again. Please, okay, please. we have gone don't, there don't with get... enough bugs crawling into facial. Yeah, you guys don't. I forgot. What, what is this wrath of Khan? Yeah, you guys I forgot. You guys hate it when we talk about bugs crawling into so spaces. Weird. Hey, what are you guys talking about on your show? Oh, today is huge. Oh, huge. it's it's a fantastic day, Matt. What? Not just any day. It's a semi-annual celebration type of day. Wow. From the Princeton Review. Yes. (laughs) They named BYU something for the 20th straight year. Oh, yeah. And we will celebrate with some chocolate milk. So that's coming up. (laughs) Oh, boy. uh, fall camp, day four, yesterday, Mo Longy does something. Yes. (laughs) He gets in practice, and he actually did something. Tanner Mangum to Matt Bushman all over the place. We're going to talk about what we saw from practice, not to mention our two-on-ones. Today. Yeah, yeah. Ty Detmer leads us off in our two-on-ones. What does he think of Tanner Mangum's progression mm. and performance to this point in fall camp? Yeah, I know everybody wants to hear a Heisman Trophy winner's opinion on that. Also, oh, yeah. what he said that what he said about Mo Longy's performance yesterday. I've got to see this. <laughs> and Diane Gawoluku, a sophomore cornerback, we go two-on-one with him as well. Not to mention a fresh between the lines, man, Lauren Frankham. And the latest from some NFL fall camps, one Cougar was cut. Another Cougar had an interception in practice. Oh, you guys are teasers. Mm -hmm. You tease us left and right. All right, that's four and a half minutes away, brethren. Go to it. You're not going to want to miss it, guys. Four and a half minutes, and you can just feast upon all of that. Plus find out what the the Princeton Review, uh, what accolade they just gave the BYU Cougars again. And why we're celebrating it with chocolate milk. Hmm. I just read something that BYU has amazing chocolate milk that they, they get their chocolate from Switzerland. Yeah. We fly it in. Because the cows are – they're different there. The cows fly it in themselves, actually. They're flying cows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With nuns. There's flying nuns and cows, and they all come together. Was that with Sally Field? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boy, between Gidget and the flying nun – I can't get enough of Sally. She's good, good, good stuff. Hey, uh, two Lakeland, Florida teens learned the hard way. It's not a good idea to throw eggs at anyone, especially a stranger. And I hope all of the kids out there are listening. According to Lakeland police, Hunter Jones, 18, and John Stone, 18, were arrested Tuesday night for being involved in throwing an egg at a bicyclist. Audio from the scene. Unfortunately for the teens, the victim was one of the department's lieutenants, Mike Lewis. He said, the egg hit me so hard, I thought it was a Coke can or something. The arrest report uh, indicates Stone threw the egg at Lewis while Jones drove the car. Lewis said he was on his lunch break in plain clothes when it happened. When I realized they had hit me with something, that's when I started chasing them. That is intense. Uh, Lewis said, like I said, they just turned up a side street, so I pedaled as hard as I could, going up the road, pulling out of my my cell phone, calling an officer all at the same time. The competitive mountain biker said he probably got up to speeds of 22 miles per hour chasing them until the other officers could arrive. No, I, uh, I did not think it was funny at all, said Lewis. But, uh, boy, it probably got a lot funnier once he caught up and the police got him. <laughs> Busted. He was on his lunch break, so they were had the right idea throwing eggs at him. But it would have to be a hard-boiled egg. But I that would so. hurt worse. Or it had to be a really hot day. 
Mm, you could cook eggs on that there cement. Anyway, they got him, folks, and two 18-year-olds then were booked in to jail.